Welcome to Funny, They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. Well, Brandon, I guess we could say something we say at the beginning of many episodes, which is, we're back! We have returned! We're like the Sasha Banks of Jewish comics podcasting. We love going on long hiatuses and then returning. We're very Somebody's good at gonna that. Somebody's going to make an audio clip super edit of just all of our, we're back! We're yeah. back! We're back! <laughs> we're back! And then you don't get to hear anybody going wild the way they would for Sasha Banks. For any of you who also watch wrestling, uh, which is another <laughs> love that Henry and I share. But there's something very different this time, Henry, and that is that um, I am not visiting you in chicago nor living in chicago anymore i am not back in california um i actually moved to boston and so i am coming from uh, a brand new new to me apartment um buried in the the spacious closet that i have or at least it was spacious until i moved all my recording equipment in here Um, but hello viewers coming to you back from the east coast i haven't been here in a while it's amazing you know it's it's actually Uh, We're joking about like the length of of time that we haven't done the podcast, but over the, the larger period of time, you have lived in three different locations, had two children. I've had one, you know, I've had had a child and had another one since we started. Um, It's like pretty insane that, that, that we've been doing this now. I don't know. Four years? Yeah, not quite, but like planning at least. Yeah. Like if you recall, one of the first big issues we covered was that wedding of the thing, which I will never forget came out in December, 2018. So we were definitely planning it around then and we covered it. So that must mean that we started, this is must be so riveting for our listeners, but (laughs) we must've started in, uh, in like January, 2019, I guess was our first January, February. Right. Well, I guess the reason you, you said it, it's supposed to be riveting for our listeners, I guess what I, the, my point was that we've been doing this a long time and I am so appreciative of everyone that hits download on this. I, I still 100%. can't believe it. Like the, we have over 5,000 downloads of this, this little thing we're doing, this conversation and research that we do. And, and right. I'm just, I'm so, I'm so, I, I can't believe it that, that, you know, whether that means, I don't think that means that 5,000 people are listening to us at a given time, but the fact that, that, that 5,000 times it's been downloaded or, and more and that people enjoy it. I am so grateful to you. So thank you out there. Yeah. I, I can't say enough gratitude. Yeah, it really means the world to us to know that there are people who enjoy listening because this is, you know, Henry and I know this is a niche podcast. This is mm-hmm. the intersection of Judaism and comic books. And there's certainly a lot of Jewish nerds, but the fact that you want to like nerd out with us and listen to this is just incredible and so heartwarming and lovely that we've been able to do this for so many episodes now covering, I yeah. think, a, at least a dozen different heroes or so. Yeah. Is there anyone left, Brandon? You know, there's at least one person left that we should cover. And I want you to know, Henry, that this is someone with, I would call a real magnetic personality. Uh-huh. Um, we've only been teasing that for four years. We've been teasing that for so long, <laughs> but we're only going to continue teasing because actually I'm talking about, believe it or not, Captain America. <laughs> no Captain America is not Jewish, but we've discovered, dear listeners, uh, that there was a run of the Captain America comics during which uh, 
he had what Henry amusingly came up with as Captain America's amazing Jewish friends. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny. I think part of, you know, we had a long hiatus and part of that, most of it was just life, you know, getting in the way. But I would say also, um, not my interest in the subject matter, but something was starting to wane. I think just sort of the feeling like, well, I guess that's it for Jewish characters in comic, in superhero comics explicitly, you know, like DC Marvel. I guess that's it. And I just, I, I think I was kind of sad about that. And this sort of accidental discovery, and we can get into that a little bit later, has really revived my love and passion for this particular subject. And, you know, the, the Brandon was able to come to Chicago uh, a couple weeks ago, and we sat in my backyard planning, and all of this, the, an, an embarrassment of accidental riches came out of this. And I feel like you know, reborn <laughs> to, to use a, to use a very not Jewish term. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. We, we had a Gil, Gilgul Nishamot. You're, there you or go. Maybe you got, um, you got like an early Shabbos extra soul that came <laughs> down and reinvigorated you. Yeah. Like basically we had this idea of what if we didn't focus on main characters, but on supporting characters because there are various Jewish like you know if the average superhero appears in thousands and thousands of comics over the decades these are characters who maybe appeared in a hundred at most for many of them maybe 20 right like supporting characters that are often you know depending on the character sometimes a writer will have these pet side characters that they bring in who flesh out the cast and they appear for a while and then another author wants nothing to do with them so we were looking at supporting characters and as we dove in we realized that there's this incredible incredible run of Captain America that just features a good number, not one, not two, but at least three fleshed out Jewish characters, some more than others, um, in the form of Captain America's Jewish girlfriend, Bernie Rosenthal, his Jewish landlady, Anna Kappelbaum, um, and his Jewish semi-romantic rival in the form of a guy named Sammy Bernstein. And so we're going to be looking at the issues that cover Jewishness of all three of these characters. Yeah. I guess one of the things that is, you know, always made me wonder like, why is, why, you know, what, what connection, if any, does Captain America have to Jews and to Judaism? And we'll, we'll talk more about this as we unpack these issues, but knowing that Captain America was a hero of uh, World War II and his first issue, he's literally punching out Hitler. Right. Th there has to be a connection there. And I, and I think I was blown away that not only is there a connection, but he had a Jewish girlfriend. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely, it's really cool to dive into it. And we, we may even get into some author reflections on that a little later. When we started the show, we were saying that we were little sick of the focus always being on either the Jewishness of the creators or the Jewishness behind the scenes. And so I think it's pretty well known Captain America created by uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, Jewish creators, clearly a sort of Jewish power fantasy in the same way that Superman was. Um, and all of this gets covered amazingly fictionally in Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. If you ever want to read a fictional take on the idea of Jewish characters or superheroes as Jewish 
power fantasies in the midst of World War II and sort of being able to take the fight to Hitler in a way that these Jewish boys in New York only ever dreamed of. Um, but now we're talking about quite a few decades later, the late 1970s and early 1980s, where the Judaism is no longer behind the scenes, but as we put it, appearing in the panels. Um, and that's that's what we're looking at. So without belaboring it too much more, Henry, what issue are we jumping into to start? Let's start with Captain America number 237, June 1979. The name of the story is From the Ashes. It was plotted by Chris Claremont, scripted by Roger McKenzie, penciled by Sal Busima, inked by Don Perlin, colored by George Rousseau, Rousseau, lettered by Elaine Heinel, and edited by Roger Stern. How'd I do with those pronunciations, Brandon? Uh, about as well as I could have. <laughs> do we want to say anything about our, our old friend, Chris Claremont here? I think just that Henry and I first discovered these characters in an issue we're going to cover later, but we've decided to present them to you in, in publication date. And so we were asking ourselves, why, why is there this Jewish character? It's so strange. And so to go back and find out that it was rooted in a story plotted by Chris Claremont, who is sort of known for bringing in his experience living in a kibbutz in Israel, known for his interest in the Holocaust and the way that he develops a certain uh, mutant character who we're going to cover one day. It's it's a welcome surprise to see that Chris Claremont is actually the start of some Jewish yeah. supporting characters in Captain America. Yeah. And of course, Chris Claremont, famously, maybe not so famously Jewish, but, you know, certainly from our perspective, that that see that ha- that it's it's not um it's not unimportant no definitely right. definitely and of course so it's plotted meaning he came up with the story beats and the general story but he's not actually writing the words it's scripted by this roger mckenzie who i know very little about actually well let's get right into it I, I do as always i, I want to say something about the cover i want to just touch on the Great. art a little bit it's very clear that this is a this is like old school captain america it's a it's a flashback He's on the cover here, and it says, Captain America, it happened at Diebenwald, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and it's Captain America on his motorcycle. You know, you can imagine, uh, you know, Avenger, the opening scene of Avengers uh, 2, Age of Ultron, him on his motorcycle, jumping over some Nazis while they're fighting him with barbed wire and the, and the fences uh, in the background. And it's just a really striking image, much like that original Captain America number one of punching Hitler. That like, okay, we're we we know what we're getting right into, and um, so I just wanted to give my kudos to like some very dynamic, fabulous art that doesn't mess around. We are in for a story that is going to involve not just World War II but the Holocaust, which is an important distinction. There we go, page one. So we're in modern times, 1979, whatever it is. Uh, neo-Nazis and the KKK are suing Captain America for violating the national forces constitutional right of free speech and lawful assembly. And there's a sort of striking image of Cap at a podium with tons of microphones and an image of him holding his, his Captain America shield with a swastika on it. Yeah. I, I feel like every time we record, there's always something that comes up and I'm like, oh, I wish I had done just a bit more research on that ahead of time. Because now I find myself thinking like, oh, to what degree in the late 1970s were conversations around freedom of speech really alive, right? Like I, I'm familiar in my lifetime, this distinction between free speech and hate 
speech or free speech and speech that puts someone's life in danger, right? You know, the the sort of famous example that shouting fire in a crowded theater mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, might, you know, is not actually an ex- example of free speech because it puts people in danger of trampling and lives right. are at risk. And so there's all sorts of examples of to what degree is hate speech protected or not protected by your amendment by by your constitutional rights and so these issues which also by the way constantly there are skokie illinois a suburb of chicago being too liberal 1979 and this issue is dealing like right there on the panels it is struggling with if captain america fights a group of nazis and prevents them from gathering Right? Is that actually an attack on their constitutional ability to lawfully assemble and to say what they, they in their eyes, they're free to say? Right, and and of course, you know that's we've seen that uh, you know hundreds of times from neo-Nazi groups, things like that. Uh, at around this time, in suburb that's was at the time populated by many survivors, the. Nazis were allowed, you know, Nazis were allowed to march because it was freedom of speech. That uh, happened in uh, Cincinnati in the 80s, 70s or 80s. Uh, Jerry Springer, former talk show host or current talk show host, was uh, was the mayor of Cincinnati and he allowed them to, so, you know, because of the freedom of speech. So these things happen. Fun um, fact, I did not realize that. But yeah. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that weird? Do you know what year was the Skokie March? 1978. Wow. So, okay. So this is like, you know, I'm sure, even though Captain America is obviously in New York, the, um, that must have been a national story that is being referenced. And it definitely was. Set up. There was a movie even with Danny Kay um, in it playing a survivor. Um, yeah, it was a it was a huge deal. That Skokie March happened in 1978. It's very possible that Chris Claremont, who's from Chicago, was reacting directly to this. Um, the next time I see him at C2E2 or. Uh, ace comic-con or whatever chicago comic-con he's at i will instead of asking him about magneto i'll ask him about this issue amazing amazing (laughs) so great so this is going to be important background for what comes next and our story continues what happens henry on page seven so so on page seven we see that cap is moving into as steve rogers excuse me is moving into his new apartment 569 lehman place in brooklyn heights in new york Great. So uh, anybody who remembers the wonderful scene in Captain America Civil War when he and Spider-Man kind of get to trade and Captain America says he's from Brooklyn, Spider-Man's from Queens, and we go back and forth. Cap remains a Brooklyn boy. And I know you're probably thinking an address is clearly not Jewish content, um, <laughs> but this apartment turns out to be an important setting throughout the run that we're going to be covering and looking at. So 569 Lehman Place. So and a couple of pages later on on, um, on page 10, Steve meets uh, Anna Kappelbaum. She's an older woman, downstairs neighbor. Steve notices something and he sees her on her arm while Anna refers to her souvenir from World War II. He see, Steve sees the numbers on her arm that are tattooed on her arm. And Steve Rogers recognizes it from... Diebenwald, which is what was referenced on the cover. So, I mean, that's yeah, pretty, so- uh, that's pretty amazing of Captain America. Like, he's not just super strong and, and, and most times compassionate. 
he's got an incredible memory for a guy that was frozen for 80 years at the time. Not fit. Yeah. He was like, it wasn't as long at the time. Right. At the time it was like 20 years. Yeah. (laughs) In his memory, this happened like two years ago. Right. 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 That's a good point. So, so it's not such, but yeah. So he, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny. How does he justify the fact that he knows exactly which camp? Um, but in this case, it is a fictional camp that um, Diebenwald clearly sounds like Buchenwald. Um, it, it sort of even sounds like a combination of Buchenwald and maybe maybe Dachau. Um, but uh, for anyone wondering, Google Translate says it means thief forest. We find a book later that defines that as forest of thieves. So there's no real meaning behind that within the story, but they clearly picked an actual German word or German phrase, the the forest of thieves, Diebenwald. And I should say that when Steve recognizes the camp, it's she isn't like, oh right, Steve Rogers, Captain America. He he is his identity is still unknown at this point. And that actually becomes part of this story later that we're not going to cover. But um so it's not like she's like, oh you, you know, you rescued me all those all those years ago i I just want to point out something funny in the dialogue she says i don't mind steve strange and so i just thought like that's funny that it says steven strange (laughs) yep yep anyway anytime you comment that something is odd to captain america the doctor shows up and is like did you mean me (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. maybe that is an appropriate time for that but um i could see uh dr strange showing up like while she's like pouring her heart about the Holocaust and it's like, this is not appropriate time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> not, not the right time. Please. Um, but at the, at the last panel, she starts to reminisce and we see we're in the flashback now. So it sort of starts the flashback. She says, I remember I was 12. So on page 11, we're confronted with imagery of what she remembers the Nazi beating an old Jewish man, breaking glass. She refers to Kristallnacht by name. Um, And she says um, in the first panel, I believed my father when he said that good good hardworking Jews had nothing to fear from that little madman, Hitler. But then came November 9th, 1938, Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. So already this is pretty powerful that she is that this comic book is referencing Kristallnacht and translating it for people that don't necessarily know. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Henry, because we actually found out by diving into a book I've been wanting to look at for a long time, finally gave me an excuse to look at this wonderful book called We Spoke Out comic books and the Holocaust, um, which was put together by Neil Adams, Raphael Madoff, and Craig Yo. Um, and it is actually a sort of uh, historical document full of interviews and reprints of comic books that shows how comic books were some of the first literature and public discourse to cover the Holocaust and to really be able to show details about what happened. I don't know if current listeners would know this, but in the decades following the Holocaust, although people sort of knew what happened and there were clearly, you know, trials and such, um, people just didn't talk about the details. It was not really a part of public discourse, even in Israeli society, which granted these are American comics, but even in Israeli society, it was sort of hush hush. Um, And so it was a really big deal that comic books would use various, it was a big deal that comic books would often present aspects of the Holocaust. And this is an early one. Um, Not only does it mention Kristallnacht, Henry, but according to We Spoke Out, 
um, this is the first comic book to ever mention Kristallnacht. So this is a, in June 1979. This is a historical moment. It is the first uh, graphic depiction. Graphic not meaning like detailed in the horror, but meaning like actually illustrated, right? This is the first comic book to ever present Kristallnacht as a historical reality. Not only that, but um, listeners, if you have an incredible memory, you may recall that Kitty Pride, the first Jewish superhero, canonically by on page, did not appear until roughly October 1979. Colossal Boy, following shortly thereafter, did not get confirmed as Jewish until November 1979. And this comic came out in June 1979, which means this reference to Kristallnacht and Anna Kappelbaum is an earlier Jewish character than the starting Jewish characters from either Marvel or DC. It's it's how did we never find this before? It's fantastic. The, um, the next panel after, um, after the Kristallnacht shows a Nazi um, herding Jews into a freight train to be taken to a camp. And then it shows them arriving at Diebenwald. And you see, um, uh, a Nazi with a swastika armband uh, whipping them and saying, move you den schnell. And then it shows the panel. And then it shows the, the next panel shows a separation of prisoners for work and for death. And I wanted to say something about the art, specifically the panel showing the train arriving at Diebenwald with the Nazi saying, move you den schnell. There's something about the art on these pages in the flashback that are that are different. It's intentional. It seems intentionally different, and it specifically to me seems like it's in the style of Jack Kirby. There's there's something about the faces, or it's like that 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 looks like Jack Kirby to me. And th- this is something I've seen before in flashback issues where an artist will draw in the style of who would have been drawing at that time. Um, John Bogdanov did it. Uh, for some Superman issues years later where he is liberating camps. They never call it the Holocaust. They never call them Jews. So that's like a whole other, other thing for another time, but he draws it in the style of Joe Schuster. Mm -hmm. So here it seems like the artist is drawing it in the style of Kirby, which is both a great choice in terms of an homage, but also in terms of storytelling, because you get to see the flashback look different. Um, and so it's like, it's, you're seeing something that's not exactly the same thing. So I just, right. I, it's I really good. I, I actually, um, I'm in this book club, a horror book club. And we recently read a, uh, a trade paperback um, actually. So this comic book called infidel, and a lot of the members of the book club or a few of them had mentioned that they've never read comic books before. And so they're asking for any advice on what it means to interpret graphic literature and what it means to work their way through. And I talked about one of the calling cards of really expert level comic booking is when the flashbacks are drawn in another style and often illustrate, you know, colored in a different style so that it is visually communicating to you that this is taking place in another st- another time, or this is a dream sequence or whatever it might be. So it's definitely powerful. And, and the other thing I want to add is I love it as an homage to Kirby not only because it gets back to Captain America's roots fighting those Nazis, as you said, but Captain America fighting Nazis is not 
different or new. We've always seen Captain America fighting Nazis, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time, and we'll get into this a little bit more, that we've seen Captain America dealing with the Holocaust, right? Like a lot of times people can get obsessed with World War II and the battles and the wars, and they focus on that. And all the MCU movies, great as they are, um, and some of them not so great, but like fun as they are, they, they dive into Nazis as bad guys in World War II, but there's never mention of Jews. There's never depiction of camps, right? Like that's left for the X-Men movies when you see Magneto and that's about it. There's something really powerful about going back to Jack Kirby's artwork and then explicitly bringing in yeah. the fact that this is happening to Jews. Yeah, that's what I was trying to allude to. I appreciate you articulating it in that we've talked before about the frustration of these guys who are writing comics in the 40s, 50s, and 60s who were clearly Jewish, most likely children of immigrants, but just didn't explicitly address those issues that they had growing up as a Jew in America post-Holocaust. They just ignored it. They did, they dealt with it in different ways, you know, stand-ins and and um allegories and and, and things like that. And certainly Stan Lee, there's a lot of that uh in there. And certainly Jack Kirby's style feels very Jewish, but it's like, why does it feel Jewish? There's something about it. Um we talked about that a lot when we did our our, our thing, our thing episode. And so here it's sort of like it's it, so so by putting Kirby's artwork um style in these things, it's sort of like what could have been if Kirby had um, done something like this. Oh, I uh, love that. I love that. And it's almost, it's almost like we'll never really know the degree to which those artisan writers in the forties and the fifties even, right. Like to what degree they were not allowed to make it explicit and to um, what degree it just wasn't necessary because right. it was just known, right? It was sort of like, they, they might not have even been thinking in that language or that thought. It's like, what do you mean? Like you read it and it's obvious, but right. then obviously in passing decades, things that were contextually obvious by living in the time get lost to history. And so it's really the, the explicit nature of it um, does a service to future readers and obviously to us by discovering it now. Right. And certainly, you know, we, we've talked about it before that also, you know, by the fifties, there was an intention to like, be like everyone else, you know, right, build, right. build your synagogues to be big, huge things like church, like churches, but, um, you know, change your name, be, just do, do everything to fit in. And so I think like that comment, you know, like you've characters like, you know, Steve Rogers is blonde hair, blue eyes. You yeah, know? absolutely. Um, but Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, characters like that various times have been referred to as Jewish, but that's another story uh, for another time. I think it, you know, to see sort of the, the retconning of it's sort of fixing what, what, what must've happened, right? Like he, he must've liberated a camp at some point. And so now we're, this is a confirmation of that. Uh, it's a shame I didn't hear about it till now, but yeah, it would have yeah. made me because I never really was like a huge Captain America guy until th- I would say until the movies, until MCU. Like ne- like he's my guy in the MCU. I I love Chris Evans and especially as Captain America. And but as the comics, I had Captain America comics, but I was kind of I was kind of like eh, whatever. But here, like this would have given me such a bigger connection. 
Yeah, definitely. Let's, I mean, we'll dive into some of this yeah, a bit more. Like, let's, 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 let's get back. So, so what happens, what happens after we see that separation? Like you said, some prisoners are sent to go and uh, to, to basically to, to be put to work and some are immediately put to death. Yeah. So then she says there, our welfare was put in the tender hands of the camp physicians. And we meet this evil looking doctor standing in front of uh, a swastika. So then on page 12, we see a guard kill Anna's parents or Anna's parents right in front of her. And I would say in, we talked about this, that in a, it's sort of happening in a shadow, but she's seeing that she, it's clear that she who is not in shadow is watching her parents who are being beaten to death in, in shadow. And it's really graphic. I mean, they're doing that thing that they yeah. do in movies where like it's off camera you see right. like a horrible beating right the right and spat. all the more horrible because it's in your mind rather than on the screen exactly the, the the theater of the mind here uh, again really br- brilliant plotting and layout um from from the artist and then it gets ahead to 1945 where there are rumors abound that that the allies are coming and the two nazis discuss destroying records so nobody will spread the rumors of what they did which right we we, you know luckily the nazis were so famously arrogant and they thought you know hitler thought the world would thank him they kept meticulous records (laughs) right and and i love the sort of like this um i mean obviously it's fictional and written but like this sort of arrogance of like we don't want people to get it wrong and to spread root unfounded rumors even though it's like rumors based on the records they're literally keeping right <laughs> um yeah yeah and then you know one of them in response assures his commander that th- the world will see they were blameless and they were and and that those two guys i think he's talking about those two guys in particular were just following orders so we're right. seeing some sort of um classic holocaust beats storyline wise like of things that we've heard growing up and mm-hmm. we've heard in literature and in, and in um interviews about the holocaust these various things we we're just following orders right um the 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 famous doctor things like that we'll, we'll get into right. more of that yeah. and then literally on the next page they <laughs> undercut it because they're like we weren't to blame we were just following orders and then what happens what do they say jews are less than cattle as as they're getting ready uh to kill he says it will be like slaughtering cat cattle fronds they're less than that my friend right the idea like we were just following orders we weren't horrible racist anti-semitic people jews are less than cows (laughs) (laughs) as we're about to mow them down with a uh submachine gun yeah the cognitive dissonance is just like astounding and i think probably the point of it is also to hammer home for the reader who in 1979 this might have really been like a radical concept right again this is the first time kristallnacht has been mentioned in a comic book and comic books are probably at this time still being read by a younger audience. So this is before the Holocaust was an established part of U.S. public education school curriculum, right? Um, You're not learning about this. There are kids that probably learn about the Holocaust by reading this. And so like, you know, in some ways the story is both brilliant and also in some ways like falling into, as you said, a lot of those familiar tropes and sort of um, making things obvious. But like, I love the fact that it's actually saying they're going to claim they're just following orders and this disgusting anti-Semitism is underlying everything mm-hmm. they're doing. 
It's unbelievable. And again, good for Claremont for just putting that on the on the page. Uh, in the next panel, you see survivor Anna, grown up and thin and looking like very much like a survivor, uh, but while in while in the camp. And she says, an American named Patton was only a few miles away, but for us, it might as well have been half a world or more. And I think she's saying that like, there are rumors of the allies coming, but that's not going to stop the Nazis from killing them right now in, in the camp. And it's, it's horrible, right. you know, to think about right. all the people that could have been saved and weren't, you know, the, the, the allies didn't get there in time. Absolutely. Like when you think about, and you see these famous images of allies or Soviet armies liberating the camps and coming in, right? It's like, I don't know if I've ever put myself in the mentality of what it would be like to be waiting. Like there are probably people who died an hour before a camp was liberated, who died a day before, right? It's like, like you see it so much in fiction, that sort of um, ticking time. Like why do they always cut the wire with just one second left on the bomb. Why do they always write? And it's for dramatic tension, but also this is in reality, right? It's like, he's half a mile away, but this is not some movie where you could just be like, don't worry, the hero will get there in time. There's no guarantee that anyone's going to get there in time until... She says he would never reach us in time, referring to Patton. And on that panel, speaking of graphic nature, we see the Nazis shooting the Jews in the back, presumably into their own graves, the, the graves, their own graves that they themselves dug. And she says, but another man would. And just like a movie off in the distance, you see the smoke or the, um, the dust from yeah. uh, in, in the desert dis- distance coming in the dust from behind the motorcycle. And the, the SS officer says, thus, and then he gets a little closer and you see at the bottom a very tiny Captain America in the shield. And he says, God's in Himmel, it's him. And then the last panel, Captain America in full font, like in full yeah. logo, him busting through the camp on the motorcycle. It's very cinematic. It's very heroic. It Again, it feels like those scenes in the, the first part of Captain America, the first Avenger or in um avengers 2 when they're already having their adventure and but it's cool that it's happening in a in a death camp it's so cool that that's happening and i think like the next page has this spread that's just like stunning to me um yeah it's also it's almost a splash page It's, it's a big panel and cap says Murderers, these people will be free. As he's beating up one, two, three, four, five, and a leg. <laughs> Guys, at the same time, one of the Nazis looking very much like he's drawn by by uh, Kirby in the bottom. And that's just so Captain America that he's beating up five Nazis at the same time. But it's in a camp. It's he's right, right. literally he's like, saving Jews. Leapt off his motorcycle, beating the crap out of these Nazis and shouting like, I know it's not let my people go, but I get big Moses vibes oh, totally. from Captain America shouting, these people will be free. There's just like, God, like it's not they'll be rescued. It's not they'll be saved, right? But it's like they will be free. Bottom panel cap punches a bunch of Nazis at the same time and they all go down. And then um, 
uh, Anna's is held by gunpoint by uh, so Nazis taking a, a prisoner. <laughs> and on the next page, Cap saves her in a classic shield throwing boingy boingy situation and a good and a good right hook. Um, and Anna narrates that she was safe, but six million other Jews died, which is a very common thread among survivors that right. either their whole family was killed, but also so many more. And, you know, th- that sort of bittersweetness of she made it, but um, right. in, in what we were talking about earlier, people that didn't quite get there or everyone else. And, and especially for an audience that, again, is less familiar with Holocaust stories than we are now in 2022. Um, the idea that she's emphasizing, do not mistake my quote unquote good fortune of being saved, of being liberated as the default story. Six million other Jews died and she doesn't say it, but like five million Others who are not Jewish also die, right? right, right. Um, so there's this sort of, it's really powerful, this punch that is saying, like, this is the exception, not the rule. This is, it's not something where you go and you see this heartwarming story of a survivor making it through the Holocaust and then they're like, oh, good, I feel so good because they survived. It's like, no, 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 no. The tragedy needs to linger over this. Like, you need right. to recognize that there are six million other stories that did not end this way. Right, right. So she sort of comes out of the flashback while. Cap in the flashback is hugging her and um, she says, and I never saw him again, referring to Captain America, but I'll never forget him. Eventually I managed to put the war behind me. I married and oh my, look at the time you boys must have come starved. Then later after dinner, thank you for listening to an old woman, Steve. It helps to remember to talk sometimes. And Captain America, as Steve Rogers says, I understand Anna. Some things must never be forgotten. To me, the power of seeing Aryan God looking Steve Rogers saying essentially never forget, right, is to end this story that we're covering in this issue is incredibly powerful. And I, I actually was surprised by how much it moved me and um Again, I think that's what what sort of revived my 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 interest and, and love of this is that is seeing, seeing such an iconic Gentile character saying that, and I know we're and we're going to cover some stuff he says that isn't so great, but to kick things off in in this story to see Captain America liberate a camp and then end this story by saying never forget was quite powerful for me. Yeah, it's maybe a little strange to say this, like, especially in 1979, while there have certainly been incredible comic books written and stories told, I think we can like acknowledge that a lot of comics throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s don't exactly pass the smell test when mm-hmm. it comes to to modern days. Like they're written, they're written more for kids, they're a little cheap, they're a little, you know, like there's a reason comic books are considered sort of cheap entertainment and they're not always literature. And yet despite the fact that this is a, you know, floppy coming out in 1979 that has depictions of some, you know, not the most graphic, but like fairly brutal imagery. Right. Right. Um, Despite all of that, 
you can just feel the respect that this story has for the source material and for the history that it's trying. Like, like the more that we have sort of zoomed in and talked about each panel and the more that we have talked about the way the story beats are working and the more that we have thought about what must it be like in 1979 to read this for the first time and to be a kid who maybe doesn't know about the Holocaust. Like I can really feel the way that Claremont and Mackenzie mm. are honoring the material and they're recognizing it it is not a cheap plot device it is not being exploitative at least in my opinion it very much feels like this is an important story to tell that a lot of people might not know about and again a lot of the things that are cliche to us now or we kind of are like yeah everybody knows that no like people did not necessarily know about crystal people did not necessarily know six million jews died like there's a real power to this, which I think is the point of that book I referenced. We spoke out like they they're showing that comic books were some of the earliest ways that people could learn about the Holocaust, even through an entirely fictional presentation of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's great. It's incredible. That was a great way to to start things off. Great. So speaking of that, I just want to sort of bring us back to to two more quotes from We Spoke Out, and the authors write about this issue and specifically the flashbacks to Diebenwald quote through this fictional device, the writers added to captain America's history, a story that in effect retroactively rescues him from any questions about the absence of Europe's Jews from the 1940s run of the series. End quote. In other words, as you mentioned at one point, Henry, if you stop and think about it, and Captain America's super busy fighting Nazis all over Europe in World War II, and you think about Captain America, the first Avenger, the movie, there has to be a part of you that's like, so was he just cool with the camps? Did he not know? Like, Why did Cap not do anything to liberate Auschwitz? Why did Cap not do anything to go to Treblinka and stop it? Like, Why was he not doing anything? And so the authors are saying that this story through essentially a retcon, right? Through this retroactive mm-hmm. continuity established like, no, Captain America did actually liberate camps. He did go in there. Granted, it's a fictional camp, but it's it like it goes back to those 1940s stories and takes something that's sort of glaringly obvious that he didn't do it and says like, no, he did it. I the love other- what, that the quote that says he it rescued him because it, it really did rescue him. Like it, from that particular knock against him in my eyes. Um, sure. And you know, the truth is I, I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about it, but if I think about Captain America and if I think about in the comics, and if I think about him in the context of where he was originally, I, then I think about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, it's a very common critique that I hear, especially online when people are like, Bruce Wayne's a millionaire. Oh. He'd be doing so much more good for the world if he was like putting that money into, uh, you know, justice reform and things like that, or to to social services rather than fighting crime as a man dressed in in long underwear and a bat costume. Right? right. Like you hear that critique a lot, and so you know you could see that also being applied. Like, yeah, fine, Captain America fought, but like, what? Why didn't he help people? Right? Like, right. There, there's real world ramifications. Um, even though you know, it's it's like it's kind of weird. Like, I'm like. To some degree, yes. And also, like, it's a comic book. It's a fictional story. But I love the fact that they show this because it's so admirable um, to to sort of, like, dig in a little deeper into what it means for it to be new. It turns out that Don Perlin, the inker, um, 
according to We Spoke Out, A, was Jewish, B, his his parents apparently hosted a family of European Jewish refugees during World War II, which is awesome. And they get this incredible quote from him um, where he says that working on this issue made him ponder, quote, this tricky question, the Holocaust was real. People were tortured and murdered. Was it appropriate to have Captain America come in and beat up all the Nazis and save everyone? Was that belittling such a serious topic? I guess maybe it was good to make this known to kids who otherwise might not have heard about it. It's a difficult topic, but maybe some good can come from talking about it. If even one person started to think about the Holocaust because of a comic strip that I worked on, it was worthwhile. I just, I think that's sort of great guy spot on incredible guy, such depth of thought behind, you know, an issue that like they're churning out these comics every month. And yet he's taking the time to remember this. Like I imagine for the creative team, this must've been a pretty memorable issue given that context. And, you know, it has me thinking like, even as we're discussing, I've been feeling, I both feel like this pride that captain america is doing something and stepping up and there's also part of me it's like yeah and also in the real world there was no captain america and six right. million jews still died and like do i really care like do i really care that you know, a fictional version of a, a a moral paragon of virtue went in and liberated a camp like i i both do and i don't and so i can recognize the like is it actually belittling the holocaust and yet i still think that this issue really has just so much respect it treats the topic with reverence in the appropriate way, I think. Yeah, I think I'm less conflicted about it in terms of like, is it treating this subject matter seriously or is it belittling the Holocaust? I think for me, if you're, I've talked about this before, I don't remember which episode, but for me, World War II and the Holocaust are, completely connected i don't think of them as two separate things and like as much as i love the indiana jones movies i'm often also wondering why where are the jews like doing that you know when he's punching nazis i think if you're going to make the decision that captain america is a part of world war ii and it's not just retconned out of existence because like in the sixties, they had, they made a choice. We're bringing back captain America and it's the same captain America that we, that we had before. And he was part of world war two. So I think for that, you have to address you, you are making a conscious decision to making him part of that world and that historical event. And so you, you have to address this other thing and not addressing it is 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 worse i think and i would say the same for my beloved superman right like superman as as um my friend roy schwartz writes about in was superman circumcised superman essentially helped win the war by and captain america to a certain extent too and wonder woman by selling war bonds in in issues of comics they would send comics to 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 soldiers and soldiers would you know, send pictures of soldiers reading the comics and Superman. What they national publications had a big campaign to sell war bonds, and that really helped win the war. And in it, there's plenty of Superman comics of him punching Hitler and Nazis, and and there is nothing about Jews at all, nothing in the Holocaust. And we're you know we're talking 38, 39, 40, 41. So like 
Or Siegel and Schuster are supposed to do. I get it. They were 19 years old. They didn't even own the comic after $150, right? And it net and, and but the thing with Superman and DC Comics was that whole thing never happened, right? Like the the universe gets rebooted in 1985, and Superman wasn't didn't arrive in 1938. He arrived in 1985. What he did, and then it keeps moving forward. Marvel somehow has always hung on to been able to successfully hang on to their long history, now 60 year history longer. I mean, while, 80 years at this point, 80 yeah. years. Right. I think I thought I was thinking Spider-Man. I was thinking like their modern, modern history, oh, sure. yeah, yeah. right. Right. Their modern history. But yes, of course, just as long as, you know, only three years after, after Superman storyline wise, you can get away with it. But then even when they've gone back to it, they ignore that part of the holiday. So I think, for me, this was really good and powerful and important. And I think this issue actually is is quite iconic in a way that, um, it, like even more so than the thing in 2002, canonically saying he's Jewish or having a bar mitzvah or Kitty Pride, um, you know, having giving that speech on on the on the X plane. I think this is what this is one of the most important comics we've ever covered, just single issues. Yeah, it's really powerful hearing you say that, actually. There's really when you think about it within its own historical context, absolutely. That's really well said. There's not much more I can add mm-hmm. to it. So instead, I'm gonna keep us going. And right. next we're looking at Captain America number 245 from February 1980. This story is the Calypso Connection. It is still written by Roger McKenzie, now with pencils by Carmine Infantino and Joe Rubenstein, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Carl Gafford, who is credited as Gaff, uh, (laughs) edited by Jim Salakrup, and the cover art is by superstar artist Frank Miller. Which Henry, I know you love commenting on the covers. I do. I, you know, I, I commented to you when we were sitting outside in my backyard. This cover is incredible, it, and I'll let you describe it in a moment. But then I looked to see that it was drawn by Frank Miller, and I love seeing these artists who have a very distinct style. Where if I saw it, I'd know it anywhere. Seeing their early work especially in marvel in the 70s and 80s when everything was drawn in the quote-unquote house style where everything kind of looks the same like it's familiar it's like if you're reading the savage she hulk or if you're reading captain america number 237 like everything kind of looks the same and and i'm not saying that as a criticism i'm saying that as an observation i think that was their intentionality there's like a familiarity to it i'm looking at this and I can maybe see a little Frank Miller, the one I, when I close my eyes and I picture the dark night, the cover of the dark night or Frank Miller doing daredevil, you know, that's what I picture. And obviously his style has gone completely expressive as he's gotten older, but it's just kind of cool to see these guys. They can do it. They can draw very, even the guys with the most sort of stylized art, they are able to, to figure draw which is why these guys are at the top of their game by the time you get to their career that you appreciate. All of these guys can do it if they need to, to draw in a very tight, sort of not photorealistic, but realistic-ish way. Uh, realistic adjacent, as another favorite podcast of ours says. <laughs> that, yeah. and, and it's just cool to see Frank Miller. Like, nice credit, Frank. Yeah, yeah. So that cover that you described has 
uh, Captain America beating up some thugs out in a hallway in the background, um, reaching in and reaching out to, to to sort of get the attention of Anna Kappelbaum, his uh, downstairs neighbor, who we just got to meet, um, who's holding a gun. It's sort of you can tell it's shaking in her hands and she's holding the gun to an old man who is tied up. Anna's saying, I've waited all my life for this moment. And then in bold red lettering nazi and it says night of the nazi hunter and so like it, it's very much a a cover that grabs your attention and oh like, yeah you don't want to miss this issue this issue matters because can you imagine being a monthly reader who's like wait a minute that's captain america's sweet neighbor who i remember that flashback of her in the in the concentration camps and now she's like execution style gonna hunt this guy and we we get words that it's a there's a nazi hunter like it's such a cool intriguing premise yeah i mean could you imagine i mean forget being a reader where you're picking up the comic and remember this is a time when like comic book stores there's maybe like one you know like that right right you're seeing this in grocery stores in grocery store could you imagine being like 12 and like oh yeah a new comic like you don't know when the comics come out or 10 or 11 like you just it's just like oh this is a new captain or cool maybe you missed the last one maybe and you yeah. just see this cover in the grocery store i would lose my mind yeah 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 so let's dive in and see the content we're gonna pick it up on page six where anna is is having another flashback and you know in 237 as you were describing it, Henry, I realized I like the fact, remember the point where you said we see her enter the camp and then it skips forward to 1945. And the sort of narrative brilliance of that move is that it leaves it open to be able to fill in what happened in those other years if you need to. And that's what we're seeing now. She flashes back to another memory we didn't get the first time. That's part of her experience in the camp. And we see that when she was a young woman, she was forced to play in a band at Diebenwald while other Jews were forced to work, and obviously the Nazi officers were entertained by this. And so we see four women in very tattered dresses, clearly dirty and disheveled. And we see a violinist, and we see someone with a saxophone, and we see a woman with cymbals, and then we see a woman with a very large, large drum, sort of like one of those war drum styles, if you can imagine the like big round on the bottom, flat on top that you kind of hit with like very large... Um, sticks we know Anne is one of the members of this band on page seven we discover she's the violinist and she takes a pause and she notes that she she just can't keep playing because the song they're about to play was her father's favorite waltz and if we remember in 237 she watched her parents killed in front of her mm-hmm. and her friend is i guess trying to be a good friend and saying oh play it in your father's memory play it for him which uh, i'm not gonna lie i, I think that's a not a great call but i mean whatever. oh I'm yeah but also her. like I, I don't they might not have a choice like she might have been telling this her friend, is true. Like, you gotta like do whatever you do to play because you're fair gonna, enough you got a gun to your back yeah fair enough fair fair point meanwhile there is a nazi officer who is scouting anna out talking to a doctor and you know I, I'd be curious to look and see. You mentioned the doctor in the last issue. I wonder if this is literally the same doctor that we saw. Oh, um, I just assumed it was because she refers to him yeah. as the camp physician. Right. And so, then he so looks exactly the same. Great. So we have the same exact guy. I did not pick up on that. but I I'm, feel like I'm that sure was that. another thing that they left open for you. Yes, see later. Absolutely. Like the right. doctor, we might tell you more about him later if we do a flashback. Right. And I don't think... 
I don't think this issue was planned at that no, time. I don't think but so I think either. that they like very creatively like, ooh, like let's use the stuff that we had. So the the officer says, that is the one I want, Herr Doctor, the girl with the violin. Perhaps she has talents other than music, which Blah. so gross, right? Like the Im- implicit sort of like interested in her sexually obviously and a guard grabs her and the doctor who we later discover is named dr menhouse says yes head general she is somewhat attractive for a jew which like you can hear the disdain you can hear that and i just want to acknowledge um that this is tackling something that was 100 a reality and i think has only become more and more of one which is that sexual violence and sexual assault in the camps was a very real and common thing. I'm going to say sort of as a trigger warning, I'm going to dive into this topic for a little bit. So if you're sensitive to discussions around sexual violence, you might want to skip forward roughly 45 seconds, a minute. There are people like Dr. Marta Havrishko, who's a Ukrainian PhD, researching this topic and specializing in in fields like like sexual violence during the Holocaust. And I stumbled upon a a blog post of hers that was citing um, a 2010 anthology of essays with the very descriptive but by no means flashy title, Sexual Violence Against Jewish Women During the Holocaust. And in it, we we get this quote from a particular essay in this collection, an essay by Anatoly Podolsky um, called The Tragic Fate of Ukrainian Jewish Women Under Nazi Occupation, 1941 to 1944. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read there. They're quoting a survivor of the Tulchin ghetto named Golda Wasserman, who says, a Romanian gendarme who was the commandant of Tulchin, selected healthy young girls from the ghetto and took them away under the official pretense of working in the kitchen and bakery of those Italian and Hungarian divisions located close to the ghetto. The girls returned having been raped and with venereal diseases. Many committed suicide back in the barracks, while some of them were killed while resisting or attempting to flee. Then the commandant selected new girls for the work. Selection was carried out every 15 to 20 days. Horrifying to hear that, that like every 15 to 20 days, another group of young Jewish women was selected. It's horrific. And there's not really much to say other than I just want to sort of acknowledge that this is part of the gross everyday evil that was going on during the Holocaust. And that, you know, while I think more and more light has been shed on sexual violence against Jewish women, especially in the 21st century and beyond, even back in the 1980s, clearly it's being implied. Like it it, it just, it sort of has to have been known and discussed. And so this comic is not shying away from it. It's not presenting it explicitly. It's implying it, but like, it's pretty easy to see what's being suggested and implied here. And thankfully, we get a little bit of satisfaction because Anna smacks this guy's face with the bow of her violin when he comments that she's attractive for a Jew. On the next page, we see that Dr. Menhouse is amused by the strike and is just cleaning his glasses, and he comments on how spirited Anna is, and then strikes her back, takes her violin, and smashes it on the ground, commenting, but she can be broken. Break her hair general, which like, what a slimy, terrible villain, right? Like just the implication. And then we leave the flashback. Anna returns to where she was because she's in a store and she bumps into an old man who coincidence of coincidences 
is Dr. Menhouse. Um, she now sees him as an older man and he seems to be sort of like a Joseph Mengel analog. analog yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, it seems like, that way. I mean, when you hear, I don't know, maybe there were other, I'm, I'm sure there were other doctors, but I'm saying when you, when I hear an M name doctor in the Holocaust, I think Mengele. So it's gotta absolutely. be, it's gotta be a, a, a analog. Yeah. That. But obviously like this, this is one where it's sort of like the story is relying a lot on coincidences. Like she's thinking about it right as she bumps into this guy. Right. Also, why is he hiding out in Brooklyn Heights? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like it was Argentina. Did it have too many uh, Nazis there to to go to? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or maybe this is when Magneto entered his Nazi hunting phase and so goes <laughs> and clears out Argentina. The guy flees to Brooklyn. To get he's away. like, he's like, Magneto only goes to Westchester occasionally. I'll be okay in Brooklyn. Yeah, I'll be safe <laughs> if I hang out downtown. I mean, that's actually funny. I'm sure that they do learn patterns of behavior. And, movement from the characters on page nine anna faints dr menhouse notices the numbers on her arm and with like the level of self-centeredness that only the true scum on this earth can possess seeing her numbers thinks to himself how everywhere he goes it's the same the past keeps showing up to haunt him and i'm just like screw you nazi like oh poor me i noticed a survivor like why can't i get away from this because you chose to systemically like <laughs> to commit genocide you yeah. were you were privy to and an accomplice to genocide you were not a german citizen who pretended you didn't know what was going on or who like just went along with it you were actively a camp doctor like you do not deserve to get away from this part of your past yeah I, i'll i'll bleep this out but i just have to say you tell everyone that your your exact comments were were it's the same the past haunts them good you nazi <laughs> that was too yes. good yeah but yeah it's just like it should haunt you <laughs> oh so on page 10 anna's in the hospital she's getting visited by steve rogers and josh cooper who is um a young black man who also lives in the building and is steve's friend he was there at the dinner where steve first met anna um so anna sheds a tear and all of a sudden this hand appears from off panel to comfort her and you can't see who it is but you see that this arm also has a number of tattoos so suddenly the suggestion is strong that like this is another jewish person another survivor and you get this quote i know how you feel mrs capital the past is not pleasant is it and on page 11 we are introduced to this man as aaron heller the famous nazi hunter this is badass that in 19 <laughs> 80 we suddenly get a character i think this is his only appearance but this dude is just like going around hunting nazis right. and he introduces himself to anna and lets her know that he's specifically hunting dr klaus mendelhaus the butcher of diebenwald and so now suddenly it's maybe not a mengala analog because this name, I'm pretty sure, has to be based on Nicholas Klaus Barbie, who was a German operative in Vichy, France. So in Nazi-occupied France, he infamously tortured prisoners so much that he earned the nickname the Butcher of Lyon, right? Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that Klaus Barbie is Klaus Mendelhaus, right? So yeah. the implication is this is a really awful dude, right? Yeah. Like, 
He's yeah. the butcher of Diebenwald. So again, this is not like a guy who pretended like this guy was actively involved in the murder and clearly sexual assault of many Jewish uh, prisoners of the camp. Yeah, I, I love the introduction of this guy too. I mean, he's he's like the Van Helsing of of hot dig Nazis. You know, absolutely. This is, this is what you know. Twenty five, thirty years before we see Magneto in X Men First Class hunting Nazis, which is a great scene for and, sure. For sure, about just as long since of uh, before Inglorious Bastards, right? Like, yeah, yeah, there there's a market for this. People like seeing. Yeah, yeah, Jews go after Nazis. <laughs> this is the fictionalized version of Simon Wiesenthal, right? Like right, hunting Nazis to be. down and finding them. And like he then another awesome thing. So he's an older man. He's with his daughter. He holds up his cane, right? And then like in this this sort of beautiful wordplay, I really love the way Mackenzie writes. The guy is really strong with his his metaphors, and so he notes and says that Klaus is the last notch on his cane. And I I love that idea for like every Nazi he hunts down, he makes a little mark, a notch in his cane, and he's like, "And this guy, this butcher, is the final Nazi I need to hunt." We then get some shocking news, which is that apparently Anna is one of, if not the last survivors of Diebenwald, mm. which is wild. This is nineteen. 1980, right? Which means that we are only, only, but we are only 35 years from the end of World War II and the liberation of the camps. We're here in 2000 and we're here in 2022 talking about the fact that the last survivors of the Shoah, the last survivors of the Holocaust are dying out. I feel like we've been talking about it for the past 20 years, mm -hmm. right? This is 20 years before that, implying mm -hmm. that Anna's already the last, which, I mean, I think that the implication is that Diebenwald was really a brutal place. Yeah. Almost no one made it out alive. Right, right. Yeah. Heller comments that he specifically wants Anna because she survived to testify directly against Mendelhaus. So we sort of get, you know, some uh um some implication of trials going on against Yeah, Mendelhaus. he wants and he wants to bring it's not he's not hunting Nazis and killing them. I mean, maybe he is, but it seems like at least in this case, he wants to bring this guy to justice, which is a superhero trope. One hundred percent. Batman right, doesn't right. kill. Superman doesn't kill. I can't say that about Captain America, but um, you know that th that's a that's a that's a virtuous. That's they're they're telling us something about the certain ethics and morals that this particular character has. He he is virtuous in that he wants to bring this person to justice. Yes, and also I can't help but think of things like the Eichmann trials and sort of mm -hmm. this insistence, right? that it's not just that you want there's like the moral aspect but there's also the sense of we need to do this by due process so that the world can hear what this person did and right like there can be no doubt about justice being served in this moment actually this just dawned on me now henry but um one of my interpretations uh in tanakh in in the torah when god tells abraham that he, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham pleads to to save um, to save the lives if he can find fifty righteous people, and then negotiates down to ten. Right? Um, there's a line where where a pasuk where God basically says, like, will 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 the judge will the true judge sort of like hide things from Abraham more or less? Right? Like, will will I not 
be show him what's really going on. And I've always interpreted it as God knows there's not 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but needs to let Abraham make this debate and see for himself such that Abraham sees that like actually destroying the town was just right. Like, like putting this Nazi on trial is justice. And the determination that the person, you know, that Eichmann, or in this case, uh, Klaus Mendelhaus should be put to death. Like that is not vigilante justice, but actually true justice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. On page 14, um, uh, a janitor working in the hospital turns out to be a secret Nazi and has kidnapped Anna, is leading her by gunpoint and saying, now move, Jew, forcing Anna into a room where, surprise, surprise, the elderly Klaus Mendelhaus is also present. Klaus is kneeling by a picture of Hitler. At first, it looks like he's almost praying to and revering the Mm -hmm. picture. Mm -hmm. But I love this, this narration from Mackenzie, who says, she sees him then. And her blood runs hot, hot as the ovens at Diebenwalds. Again, Mackenzie's just like killing it Great with the writer. dialogue right now. Um, so Anna's very upset. And Klaus, it turns out, has also been taken captive by this neo-Nazi, by this janitor. And he doesn't recognize her. He And Anna's shocked. This is the man who has haunted her dreams for decades. The man who sexually assaulted her and he informs her that she's one Jew among many. He doesn't remember her specifically, which is gross and awful and a testament to sort of the horrific things he did. Um, And just like, I can't, I can't imagine what that is like to survive that experience and think of the one person that is probably like symbolically representative of the entire Nazi machine. Right. And then to have him be like, I don't remember who you are. You were just one among many, like how dehumanizing and terrible. Although I think it also probably be terrible to be remembered by him. Right. Um, so the, the kidnappers are these neo-Nazis that want to bring back a fourth Reich. They're trying to bring back the party. And on page 15, once again, Captain America bursts in to save the day. Hmm. The neo-Nazis trying to rush Anna out saying this way, Jew Schnell. Anna and Mendelhaus as they're moving are sort of talking. Mendelhaus alludes to believing in God and Anna doesn't understand how saying, you know, how can you believe in God? And Mendelhaus says, because I have seen Satan while looking at the portrait of Hitler, which I guess the implication here is that he's feeling remorse and recognizes that what he did is wrong. Although the fact that earlier he's like, Oh, why is the past always haunting me? Like I certainly don't buy the remorse, but it's certainly trying to set up the idea that like in old age, at least Mendelhaus is not a threat yeah. anymore. I, I think he's sort of, it's sort of like, if I can get into his head, realizes that Hitler was evil and what he did was bad. And now that he accepts that he should just be able to move on with his life because he he recognizes this person was bad and the things I did were bad. So now why can't I just move on with my life? Because I have made that understanding, right? And right. it's sort of like he's inconvenienced by the constant reminders, which again, good dude. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like if you're sitting, you know, it's like one thing if it's like I recognize what I did wrong now that in a moment of passion, I like took someone's life, right? Like I'm thinking of sort of somebody, you know, really coming to grips with what that might mean versus like, I took the lives away of like hundreds or thousands of people. I was a mass, like, it's just, it's a level of scale that I, I don't know. And 
it's very hard for me to to have any sympathy for no, this man i, I don't think um, we're supposed to. I, I even here i don't think we're supposed to i think we're right. sort of just getting a picture of who he is now right so on page 16 a nazi is teasing captain america that he you know how dare he care about this jew instead of his own life because nazis are always arrogant enough to think they can beat captain america and in a very satisfying panel captain america smashes that picture <laughs> of hitler uh it is instead of chekhov's gun we have chekhov's hitler portrait <laughs> cap takes it and smashes it over the nazis heads um, to, to me this is played a little bit for like action comic relief. Like, yeah. like I laughed when I saw it. I was like, yeah, you know, like I can imagine in the movie of the pig, the, the Nazis head coming through it, right. right, on right. Body. And it's, it's like sort of the beat is to laugh there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought I was going to wait until the end, but I just want to point out in contrast to two thirty seven, what we started talking about, where it feels like there's so much respect for and reverence for it here, even though I think there's some really interesting stuff going on and I like the issue and we're going to continue talking about it. I can feel the lack of Claremont's presence because the plot is a bit more traditional superhero-y and zany and sort of like there is that silly moment where I think that would be completely out of place and out of mm. tune with the seriousness that issue 237 took, right? Like this right. It would be important. presented more heroic, like the Captain America flying it, you know, coming into the camp and the way that that there's nothing funny about that. I, right. I, I don't think it, it's bad that it's done this way here. I love when Nazis are made to look like a farce. Yeah, um, yeah, but I I don't think it's but just it's, the Nazis. it's tonally it's different. It does, and it's you're probably right. It is probably maybe right. Claremont's absence. Like even even the sort of like oh my gosh, it turns out that this guy, this Nazi, is in town at the same time, and I ran into him. Like it's just this issue's it hinges a bit more on sort of. Um, uh, stretching your credibility yeah. a little bit more. It's like a bit more superhero-y and a bit yeah. less. Whereas 237 felt like, like other than the fact that Captain America is the one who liberates the camps, almost everything we covered could have just been in a Holocaust movie, could yeah. have just been in a depiction of the Holocaust. And it happened to have Captain America at the end. Whereas this one is like, it feels like first and foremost, a superhero story that is right. playing in the world of the Holocaust. Right. And again, I don't think it's bad. I think Mackenzie does a great job. I think there's some killer dialogue as I've uh, noted numerous times, but I can feel the way in which it's a bit more just superhero and a bit less like here is this very important issue that is covering something that has never been talked about in comic books before. So on page 17, we get to another standoff. Heller has arrived, the Nazi hunter, and he's holding a gun up at the Nazis. And one of the neo-Nazis is holding a gun up to Anna. And they, you know, Mendelhaus, actually, the, the, the Nazi doctor, knocks a gun out of the neo-Nazi's hands, saving Anna. And Anna picks up the gun and turns it on Klaus Mendelhaus, on the butcher of Diebenwald. And as she does, Captain America tries to talk her down, saying that murder solves nothing. And Henry, maybe we can do this dialogue. Do you, uh, do you want to be Anna or Cap? Sure, sure. Murder is the only solution left, the final solution. This, this butcher taught me that at Diebenwald, when he murdered my parents, my family, I still carry the scars, and he's going to pay for that. Yes, he will, but in a court of law. Not here. Not like this. Pull that trigger, and you'll be no better than he is. Well, isn't that what they always said? 
Maybe they were right. Maybe. Holy. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Mackenzie's dialogue is top notch. That wordplay of, you know, obviously the Nazis referred to their plan as the final solution to the Jewish question. And so her saying that murdering this Nazi is the only solution, the final solution, like lovely comic book wordplay going on there. But also, like Captain America tells her that if she pulls the trigger, she's no better than he is. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> all right. You know what? I didn't say it before and you like read it on my behalf because obviously I, I don't like to curse so much, but like honestly, f- you, Captain America. <laughs> this yeah. woman who has been, who witnessed her parents get killed who was sexually assaulted, who has found her tormentor, her shooting the man who did this to her is not morally equivalent to a Nazi doctor who ran torture tests on Jews, killing hundreds and thousands of them, and raped a woman. There's no way in which the moral balance equates to equal. It is not the same. It is not you're no better than he is in doing this. And and like it's an infuriating infantilization and simplification of the concept of justice. This idea that somehow like, oh no, uh, if you dare do that, like it's yeah, it's it's um well, I think it speaks to what you were saying about sort of the because comics nature of this this issue in that it, it tonally as opposed to the the previous one that we covered because it's just sort of like this and we'll see this sort of attitude from him later but like this sort of just very one-dimensional version of a superhero where it's like killing is bad and all killing is equal and it's just like and I feel like if I could sit down and have a conversation with Steve Rogers, he would understand, but it just right. seems like in that moment in the uniform, you know, like kill right. it, you know, wagging his finger, killing is bad. And if you do it, Look, you're exactly the same as this killer because it's the same. It's not, it's not an equal. Yeah. And he, and look, he just doesn't get it. If Captain America had said, put that gun down, let it be in a court of law, the Nazis have already corroded, right? Like, like that experience has already done so much trauma to your soul. Don't put the, like, the, the, don't put your soul through it. Like, it's not worth it to like, like something like that might convince me a little bit more. Something that's not saying you're no better than him, but something that's saying like vengeance is, you know, cold it's not ultimately going to bring anyone back right Right. like even though i fully understand in this case why she wants it right like like maybe i'd be okay with that but it's just so well (sighs) when you're reading it and and you know obviously you're reading it different than like the the reader that they intended right sure i think the the reader that they're intending they want them to say no no don't do it on a listen to cap right as you're reading right right and here i'm like go ahead Go ahead, Anna. 100%. Like, I'd be totally fine if she pulled that trigger. Right, yeah. Right? Like, get your revenge. Get it, you know? Get it, girl. I, get it, girl. Right. <laughs> get it, Mr. Yeah. Gapplebob. But I actually was going to mention this later when we're having, yeah. when we're going to have this, a similar conversation, another issue. But Captain America is famous for killing Nazis. So he's literally done the same exact thing. And I don't think he regrets it. And Maybe in the comics, listen, again, my my image in my head, this is one of these, we've talked about this offline about things that the movies have sort of replaced 
in your mind in terms of comics? We've talked it mostly about sounds. Like when you're reading a X-Men comic, do you hear Patrick Stewart's voice when Charles is Xavier is talking? And the answer I think we both had was yes. And similar things. I mean, with- actually for me, it's, it's the voice of the guy who does Professor X right. in the 90s <laughs> animated <laughs> totally, series. Totally. I hear his voice more yeah. than Patrick Stewart's, but the point, the point stands. Yeah. It's Steve yeah. Rogers. I mean, I hear Chris Evans, right? And so visually he is, how I think of Captain America. And I don't know about the comics in the forties, but in the movie, he's definitely mowing guys down with the machine gun Nazis down. And it's like a, yeah, "Yeah, go get him cap moment. Right. So who the hell are you, Steve, to get on your high horse and tell this poor woman who has suffered the way she is that she can't pull the trigger after you've done the exact same thing to many, many Nazis. It just dawned on me because you put it out. I'm pretty sure he was killing lots of Nazis in the 1940s, right? I wonder the degree to which this is an impact. This is because of the Comics Code Authority, which didn't get established until the 1950s. And suddenly, like, I wonder if there's something that's sort of saying, like, because Batman also killed in his early issues. Very like early, like yeah. it's a retcon right. to say that he never kills. Right. And part of that was the character developing, but I'm pretty sure part of that is also because the comics code authority where suddenly heroes right. shouldn't be murdering anymore. They shouldn't be killing people. So I wonder the degree to which like Captain America 100% killed Nazis in the forties. But then by the time he's back in the sixties, the comics have to pretend like he fought them and beat them up, but didn't right. actually kill them. And maybe that's why, He's saying it. And then, of course, Marvel will ultimately drop the Comics Code Authority in the early 2000s. And then we can have, like, you know, um, murdering comics again, I suppose. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, it it, like literally just dawned on me that that might be like maybe all this time I've been upset at these authors for doing this. And maybe Mm -hmm. Mackenzie's hands are a little tied. But what? But okay, totally. And we know editorial was a thing when from when talking to Jerry Ordway about that. In the previous issue, they showed graphic violence. Yep. I know. It's weird. It's weird. So I don't know. We'll have to dive into the the comics code authority at some point. Um, All right. Well, how does this this comic end, Brandon? So Mendelhouse, <laughs> as he's shot, it asks for forgiveness. He's dying. Um and Anna appears shocked and surprised and she's insisting that she didn't shoot him and and we see a panel that it's almost like a camera zooming out to see heller who has had what looks to be a heart attack or a stroke and is clearly at the end of his own life heller the nazi hunter who you had commented wanted to bring him to justice in a court of law he decided in this moment instead to shoot the nazi which i also interpreted as like he is looking out for anna he's like let me be the one to have this on my conscience not you um but he he kills he kills the Nazi. He kills Klaus Mendelhaus. And that's sort of the end of the issue is, is that revelation. Oh, and then um, Captain America comments that it will never truly be over until we learn to temper justice with mercy. And he's I not wrong. Say, by he's saying, not wrong. Right. It's maybe not the right time to talk right. about right. this, right? <laughs> like, again, I don't know how much mercy I want to have for an infamous uh, uh, Nazi doctor who butchers people. Um, but it did make me think of of a lot of Jewish texts and specifically a Midrash um, from Bereshit Rabbah 12, 
15 that looks at God creating the world. And it makes a comment of a parable of a king who has these empty glasses and is worried that hot water is going to make them expand and break and cold water is going to make them contract and shatter. It's only a mixture of the two hot and cold water together that will let the glasses remain. And then it says, you know, so too the Holy One of Blessing said, if I create the world only with the attribute of mercy, of compassion, no one's going to be concerned with the consequences of their actions. On the other hand, if I create the world only out of judgment or justice, how can the world stand, right? Like nobody's going to withstand the judgment. Rather, God creates the world with a mixture of deen and rachamim, of judgment and compassion, of justice and mercy. And later texts will sort of take this idea and say that that really it's about um, justice tempered by mercy, right? It's like a common feature. So I do like... I, I don't think that Mackenzie knew this midrash, right? But I do like the fact that it's playing into a a, a religious idea here. Yeah, nice hug from Cap at the end too. As you know, absolutely. Um, I want to say really quick, since we were talking about a Nazi hunter and the nature of forgiveness, I gotta throw out a recommendation for anyone who's mm-hmm. interested. One of my absolute favorite books. It's Simon Wiesenthal's The Sunflower published in 1969. Wiesenthal was a famous Nazi hunter, but he also survived working in, in the camps and, and, and survived the Holocaust. Um, and Wiesenthal basically tells the story of how at one point he is working and he gets pulled aside by a nurse and brought into a building where there is a Nazi soldier who is dying of wounds. And the Nazi soldier is, I believe, Catholic and wants to confess his sins of all the Jews he killed and be forgiven by Simon Wiesenthal as like the representative of the Jewish people. Like he wants to ask for forgiveness before he dies. Um, and so Simon Wiesenthal tells the story of what happens and how he hears this Nazi's confession. And I won't give away whether or not he can, he forgives this person. Um, but that's just the beginning of the book. And he, he ends that section by saying, and you, if you were in my shoes, what would you have done? And the rest of the book is a series of essays written by everyone from the Dalai Lama to Desmond Tutu to the Pope on the nature of forgiveness and whether or not they would forgive a Nazi. And, you know, it was published a little over a decade before. It very well could be an influence on the story and this question of, you know, would should Klaus have been forgiven, right? Like, I wonder if that was influencing the story. It, it Yeah, it could be. Could be. Could be. Up next, we have Captain America, number 275, November 1982, Yesterday's Shadows, written by J.M. Dimiteus, penciled by Mike Zeck, inked by John Beatty, colored by Don Warfield, lettered by John Morelli, and edited by Mark Grunewald. Yeah, absolutely. And so you might notice that we have a new creative team now. We... Uh, have moved on from Roger McKenzie and from Claremont. It's now J.M. DeMatteis writing with art by the amazing Mike Zeck. And this team is most well-known for a famous Spider-Man story called Craven's Last Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are now in the midst of DeMatteis's roughly 40-issue run on Captain America that starts, I think, with 261 and will go up to issue 300. DeMatteis is not Jewish. But he is going to continue um, 
bringing in Anna Kappelbaum. And he's also going to emphasize the character that actually got us started, Henry, which is Captain America's Jewish girlfriend, Bernie Rosenthal. Now, Bernie first appears in Captain America number 247, two issues after the last one that we covered. She is a new neighbor. She moves into the apartment building. Cap meets her. There's sparks. They fly. They start dating. And I guess they're dating for roughly 30 issues leading up to number 275, which we're diving into now. Um, which is going to have some major implications for their relationship. So Steve is carrying groceries back home with Bernie and it, and Anna Kaffelbaum. So it seems like they have like a little, little crew there. Yeah. It's a real neighborhood, a real neighborhood. It's, it's nice. It feels very New York. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, th- they're all of a sudden stopped in their tracks when they see a giant swastika painted on a synagogue that they're walking by, which um, we see in the narration is named Temple Beth Or. And of course, like, you know, we've done this before. We've had to like find, is this a real synagogue? We did yeah, that yeah, yeah. with the it's thing. It's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, yeah. We're looking on, we're looking on Google maps. We're going to street view. We're, we're, we're doing all kinds of things to find if this is a real synagogue. And Sure enough, Brandon found that there is a congregation, Beth Orr, in Belmore, New York. Right. So so the name is clearly taken for someone, right? Beth Orr, so the, the House of Light. Um, but Belmore is not the city. Um, no. We are in Brooklyn Heights. And so Henry and I looked to see, are there any synagogues in Brooklyn Heights? And there was nothing that could really match it. However, um, Brooklyn Heights is not too far away from the neighboring neighborhood, Cobble Hill. And there's the Cane Street Synagogue that is right there in Cobble Hill. So could this be modeled after Cane Street? It very well could be. Could be, could be, which is really exciting. So Steve is, of course, shocked. You know, he, he's reacting to also Anna dropping her groceries and saying, oh my God, a Nazi swastika, <laughs> which, which is right. kind of funny. Like he could just say a swastika. <laughs> yeah. This is a case where it's very much like it's a comic book. They have to like, explain be very things. clear for people. Yeah. Yeah. Who in heaven would have done such a thing? So I don't know, Steve, maybe Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she says, if you had lived as I through Diebenwald, Stephen, you would not have to ask. Right. Which like, I also want to point out, this is the first issue that we found of this Captain America run. Like the, the issues we just covered with her flashback were much earlier. So at the time this struck us as like, Oh my God, she's mentioning a concentration camp, even though it's fictional, like, Whoa, this is so intense. But I also want to point out, it's interesting to note, Anna still doesn't know that Steve is Captain America. So we've gotten numerous stories of her and Captain America interacting. And we've certainly gotten that, but as far as she knows, Steve knows a little about Diebenwald and heard the story, but like, it makes sense for her to be like, Oh, Steve, you, Bless your heart, sweet child. You you don't know. You wouldn't have to ask if you had lived through Diebenwald because she doesn't know that he did liberate her, right? She's unaware of that. They wow. find this, this desecration of the synagogue. And on page six, we are introduced to uh, the latest of our roster of comic book rabbis. And, <laughs> Do we have rab- a minion yet? Or are we close? Are I don't. I think we're getting close. We're at least halfway. <laughs> I feel like, um, although many of them have died, so I don't right. know how many. But we get Rabbi Kessler, who I got. One say, of them was a Nazi. Uh, 
uh, pretending to be pretending a rabbi. To be a yeah, rabbi. We, don't, we don't count him. He definitely <laughs> does not count my minion. Rabbi Kessler is wearing a slick purple suit. <laughs> my guy is looking good, although he's not wearing a kippa. So I assume, you know, it's early 1980s, not wearing a kippa. So probably, you know, working at a reform synagogue. There were a lot of reform synagogues at the time that did not wear kippa. But anyway, they ask Rabbi Kessler what happened. Rabbi Kessler explains, most of their work was pure maliciousness, toppling pews, smashing windows. But I'm afraid they also stole our Torah, to which Steve asks, Torah? And Bernie responds, a handwritten scroll containing all our holy books, but taking it is so pointless, so cruel. Gotta say that her explanation feels much more encyclopedia than nature. (laughs) It's a handwritten scroll containing our holy books. Like, A, no one talks that way. And B, it doesn't contain our holy books. It It is is our our holy books. books. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like, it's like what is this? Yeah. Yeah. It's Uh, so funny. I mean, it is another one of those over explanations for the crowd, but I was just thinking just now, is this the first canonical mention of the Torah in comics? I mean, I know it's a little later. It's 70, it's 275. So we're couple years later but yeah it's 82 now 82 i don't know kitty pride never mentioned the torah between 1980 and 1982 colossal boy certainly didn't that's a great question guess i got research to do (laughs) 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 all right so rabbi kessler continues to explain uh that this is not random and comments that actually anti-semitic crimes quote have been on the upswing in america desecration of temples and jewish cemeteries a resurgence of anti-semitic groups so it's the 1980s we are just a few years still removed from that march in skokie you were describing and you know we we encountered this when we covered the sandman those golden age sandman stories in Sandman Mystery Theater that throughout the United States history, there have been sort of ebbs and flows of neo-Nazi groups rising and and sort of getting attention and and being emboldened to commit more crimes. And certainly we've seen that in the US in the past five plus years, right? Um, so we're getting an upswing in anti-Semitic activity. And Anna responds, Gewalt, look at this place. And I'll bet all the publicity that Nazi rally out on Long Island has gotten helped inspire this. Uh, so once again, we get to these issues of Nazis assembling in public places, having rallies, sort of using First Amendment rights as a cover to be able to, you know, preach hate and anti-Semitism. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Continue on page seven. Henry will be uh, Steve Rogers and I'll be Bernie. I agree that these neo-Nazis are a vile breed, but if we deny them their rights, where do we draw the line? Who decides which beliefs are acceptable and which aren't? A free society has to allow all ideas, both noble and innoble. Freedom of expression. Right. And we're going to express ourselves right back at them. That's why there's going to be a counter rally against the Nazi group, Steve. Everyone from our building is going. I've been meaning to tell you about it, but... And Bernie basically comes up with reasons why she didn't get to, but she invites Steve to go to this counter rally, which like, hell yeah, I'm glad there's a counter rally to the Nazi gathering. And here we're seeing Steve 
giving us those speeches that we saw in previous issues. But when we first saw this, this was the first thing we're like, come on, Cap. So we already yeah, got what is wrong about with you? Yeah, this makes more sense now. There's this is three issues in of this attitude. <laughs> right, right. But I, I do want to say so like Steve is continuing to come up with excuses not to go to this counter rally. And so I've just got to say, like, we have seen that this building that he lives in, right, 569 Lehman Street, that all the residents are either Jewish or black, right? So like, (laughs) not a good look for the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, only non-minority resident of this building to be like, I'm not going to go with you to the anti-Nazi rally. Like, not a good look at all, Steve Rogers. The only thing I'll say is, is the first time I found this issue, I was enraged, enraged at what Cap was saying. And... Going back to the very first page of 237, where Cap was being sued by neo-Nazis in the KKK, like, does that issue as background justify or at least explain Cap's behavior a bit more that he's like, I'm literally getting sued over this stuff. Like, they need to have the right, like, I I guess I get it. Although I do. When has Steve Rogers ever cared about being sued? Like, uh, you know, I know it it doesn't it doesn't uh, excuse it, but it explains it. Yeah, it just made, it's more right. it's now more consistent because when we read it first we're like what why is captain america acting like this he's the paragon of virtue he's right absolutely <laughs> yeah and and you pointed out also henry that like it also doesn't make any sense because like he literally rescued anna kappelbaum from neo-nazis and had to deal with a nazi hunter and like he clearly must have realized you can't allow neo-Nazis to gather. And yet, despite that experience, he's still being, it's really weird. Yeah. After everything he went through with the Nazi hunter and like, did he not learn anything? Like, why does everyone else have to learn something, but he doesn't have to learn anything? Yeah. Yeah. He just, <laughs> I mean, typical, typical white man. Am I right? Right. No, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So on page eight, we now take an interlude and we get to know these neo-Nazis quite intimately. There is a gathering of these Nazis who are going to have this rally. They are wearing uniforms. They have armbands with swastikas. These are not like alt-right people that are claiming to not be Nazis. These are very clearly proud neo-Nazis, right? And like the leader of the group is essentially giving a speech, which um, I'm going to note has some gross and horrific language, and I think it's important to read it in full. So I'm going to read the speech. Just as the blacks must be sent to Africa, the Jews must be sent to Israel. Is there any other sane path? We must separate the races. We must improve the white man's lot. We've carried the weight of Zionist lies long enough. How many more fables about an imagined Holocaust must we listen to? There was no Holocaust. We know that if there was death in the German work camps, it was because of disease. If there were crematoriums, it was to stop the spread of the disease by burning the bodies of the dead. It is time we made the world aware of this truth. It is time. It is time. Um, and the panels are showing this sort of slow zoom in on once again, a portrait of Hitler behind him. Cause all these people, right. Love Hitler uh, so much. And I, I mean, reading it, it's like, 
you know, I, I, I wanted to dramatize it so that it, it kind of came across, but like, I was literally feeling gross reading those words and, mm-hmm. and reading, like it is capturing so many sort of, um, uh, key points of anti-Semitic diatribe and drivel, right? Like it's it sort of, it, it manages to capture the idea of, of Israel, right? Suggesting like, like this neo-Nazi idea of like the Jews should just go off to Israel and, and leave the U S alone. Um, it mentions Zionist lies. It's clearly denying the Holocaust. It has some like pretty typical Holocaust denial minute, right? Like, like most Holocaust denial is not claiming it never happened. It's claiming that it didn't happen to the degree to which Jews claimed. Right. And so he's saying like, yeah, Jews died because of disease, but it was just a work camp, not a death camp. Right. And he's claiming that the crematoriums were not about murder. Right. Like it's all of these excuses that are sort of coming up. And like, you know, in my mind, I was instantly thinking of Deborah Libstadt and sort of like her, her, career essentially of fighting against holocaust deniers but mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. this is just I, i'm both grossed out by reading it and also like hats off to de Mateus for sort of like accurately reflecting this really gross mindset and showing it right it's sort of like confronting the reality that there are people out there spitting out this i mean drivel's the only word that keeps coming to mind yeah, and also by the way, there's an MCU connection between Deborah Lipstadt and Steve Rogers because Deborah Lipstadt was played by Rachel Weiss, who was sure. also in Black Widow and is the sort of adopted mother of Steve's uh, comrade, Black Widow. Right, right, right. So we we get a, a six degrees of separation <laughs> or less. Yeah, you want to tell us now what happens to change Steve's mind? Sure. Steve, during this period of time, is an artist, which is just a just a cool, interesting thing about Steve Rogers, which I don't think I knew before this. Yeah, like not only a secret identity, but like we know Peter Parker is a photographer, and right. I know Clark Kent is a journalist. Like Steve Rogers, like an artist, that's cool. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as a particularly like visually creative person, but I guess maybe he is. So anyway, it's just interesting. He's working. He's going into heading into an advertising agency um, to meet with uh, Mr. Bennett. And uh, while Mr. Bennett is, is there, he gets a call from an Arthur Grossman. The secretary lets him know. Mr. Bennett refers to Grossman sort of to himself, but I guess kind of to Steve. Yeah, I think he's just saying it out loud casually, yeah. like, ugh. Uh, and he but, goes, yeah. that old Jew. And Steve Rogers rips up his own art and storms out. And, uh, and he says... I keep thinking, I keep thinking we rid the world of people like you 40 years ago, Bennett, but you just showed me I was wrong. And Bennett mutters, we funny. He doesn't look Jewish. Love the call out (laughs) to the podcast. Great line. I wish Steve had said it instead of this guy, but (laughs) right. But I mean, like, it's very funny that like Bennett is sort of like, why would this guy get upset unless he's also Jewish? Right, that must right. be the case, which probably kind of speaks to a certain arrogance around privilege and minorities, right? Yeah, but, here he's like, oh, fellow Gentile, white Gentile. Right, right. Uh, that old Jew, right? Am I right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like you'd expect, you know, six foot five, 225 pound, blonde hair, blue eyed Steve Rogers. <laughs> yeah say you're a pig it's just like it's it's so baffling to me because 30 issues ago steve literally saw nazis holding a gun (laughs) to anna's head 
threatening to shoot her. He knows that there are active neo-Nazis and like this dude and his casual anti-Semitism being like that old Jew is something that's what sets him (laughs) off. It just, it like baffles me. I don't understand it. The only, the only explanation I could possibly come up with is that it's sort of like somebody who says, well, all racists are cartoonish caricatures of themselves. And clearly there are very evil people called racists. And it's like someone having their eyes awoken to the insidious nature with which like there's casual racism, there's casual anti-Semitism, and maybe Steve recognizing like, oh my gosh, you're not an evil person who like puts on a KKK robe and gathers with other Nazis and like marches in the street. Like you're just an advertising exec, but like this is impacting you also. And so like, oh man, I do need to put a stop to like the literal Nazis because like I need to show that this behavior, like that's the only thing I could think of to explain why this would set him off in a way where like, the vandalism and attempted murder does not. <laughs> and he vandalizes his own artwork. He's so angry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> On page 12, we get to uh, the Nazi rally. We actually see it happen. And it's taking place on a Saturday because, of course, it's taking place mm-hmm. on Shabbat, probably when they assume the Jews are going to be in synagogue or not attending it. And yet, we see an anti-Nazi protest arrive, um, although it is smaller in number than either the media or the Nazis. Mm. So so Bernie is just really excited because Steve shows up. Apparently, he didn't tell her in advance, but like she's very excited Steve changes his mind and is there with the rest of the house. And all of a sudden, Bernie gets surprised by this guy who like puts his hands over her eyes, sort of like a guess who. Um, and she's shocked when she turns around and sees that it is Sammy Bernstein, her ex-husband, as we're going to discover. Um, and she's like, Sammy, it's you. To which Sammy responds, you were expecting Yasser Arafat. Uh, what an idiot. <laughs> Why would anyone say that? It so, so, I'm so cringe reading that. Like, it's and I know so saying the word cringe is cringe also, but it was like, I was like, ugh. Oh, come on. And I have a second cousin and a nephew named Sammy Bernstein. So so funny. (laughs) Right. So it's great to see. Do do any of them have bright red kippas the way that Sammy does? (laughs) Not that big, but I'm sure sure my nephew, uh, Sam... Bernstein has a couple. <laughs> I gotta say, his his keep up pops from the page with that bright red and his yellow shirt. Like he's he's very visually uh, uh, dynamic. Yeah, for, and, despite being a civilian. And, and you know what else that is really cool? There are three characters on a in a comic panel with wearing kippot that aren't in a synagogue. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's really cool. I don't know if I've ever seen that in a comic. Like Jews gathered together wearing kippot in a comic that aren't that aren't in a prayer service. That aren't in a prayer service or, or, or like a wedding came or, out something. Of or something. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, they're like at an and, event and they're wearing kippot. So they're either wearing it like right. makes me think like, are these people who are putting on their kippot specifically because to show their Jewish pride or are they observant Jews who wear head covering all the time yeah either either way i love it love it absolutely right like it makes me think when i go to various protests and rallies and marches a lot of times they're sort of like the rabbi uniform which is when you go to these things like you'll wear a kippah and you'll often wear a talus even though like i wouldn't normally necessarily wear a talus 
but I'm sharing a march, but like part of it's like visually communicate to people like I am Jewish and I'm standing up for this right. issue. Right. Um, and so, right. It's like, you can imagine, as you said, that there would be people who normally wouldn't wear a keeper, but they feel like it's like really important to wear it because they are counter protesting these right. freaking Nazis. Right. On page 13, Bernie introduces everyone to the man from the Jewish protection organization who planned this protest. And so obviously right away, I thought this is either like a ADL or JDL analog, right. uh, but so there is some the sort of like defamation league or the Jewish defense league. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Which and, also like, I mean, interesting to see, like, I also love the way where it's like, it's not only a rally, but it turns out that this rally is organized by Bernie's ex-husband. And so there's like, <laughs> It just reminds me, I like the way that it captures a little bit of like the small Jewish world where all the Jews know each other. It's just like, yeah, the guy who organized it is like this guy I used to to marry, right? It's just, it just reminds me of like when I talk to, I don't know, when I talk to students or whatever, like somehow the the key players, like we all interact with each other and know them. It's like, oh yeah, I used to go to like camp with this guy who's putting on this rally. I'm going to go to it now. <laughs> oh, sure. This guy, yeah, he's putting on a rally. He's my ex-husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, this crazy guy who goes around saying wild things he's my ex yeah talk about uh by the way leveling up a little bit for bernie she goes from this guy making bad racist jokes to captain america so (laughs) it's a it's a bit of a step up yeah yeah so the angry jewish protesters are pointing at the nazis and it's this cool dichotomy this cool image of uh, a protester wearing a kippah pointing forward at the nazi and the nazi is sort of pointing back but gesturing with the sig heil yeah Um, yeah. it's sort of like this cool makes the sort of uh they're sort of pointing at each other in a way Um, yeah yeah yeah. which is both cool to see visually and also uh, a little discomforting knowing that once again the author is kind of creating this like moral equivalency that is really going to come out in the dialogue that we see on page 14 as sammy and steve get into a bit of a a, a disagreement right um here we'll, we'll go ahead and read so sammy goes those Fleas, my friend, are carriers of a planet-wide disease that, given time, will infect us all. A disease that must be eliminated. Those are fairly violent sentiments. No more violent than the monstrous sentiments he espouses. And Sammy says this while pointing at the at the Nazi. We covered it earlier, as as Henry said, but but I have a real discomfort with the way that Steve is like making this comment of like somehow, even though these Nazis are literally gathered for the purpose of talking about like kicking Jews out of the country, right? And saying how like they don't belong there, that the fact that Sammy wants to defend his life and like describe, right? Like we kind of get the paradox of tolerance, right? Like there's this famous example of the of um, you know. In the paradox of te- of tolerance, we get this idea that a tolerant society um, must not tolerate the intolerant because otherwise you let them in and they just kind of kick everybody else out. And so, you know, Sam is basically saying like, you can't allow the Nazi- neo-Nazis, like they're going to just rise in power, right? And continue to do things like you got to eliminate them. And Steve is being like, Mr. Oh, you can't do that. And like, we we brought it up, but I just have to point out, and granted, this is me subscribing to a particular lens in 2022 but like what we see here is steve rogers blonde haired blue eyed presumably christian is someone of the dominant religious and ethnic group letting a minority know 
that when they bring up the solution of violence, it's going to get policed and criticized. Somehow, it's not okay for the minorities to want to defend themselves because it runs the risk of violence, even though Steve Rogers spends all day enacting violence on people all the time. Heroes constantly are above the law and are able to beat people up as much as they want. He's famously known for killing Nazis with yes. guns. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Like it, it bears saying multiple times, <laughs> right? That he does. It's so like, like yeah. it really bothers me that he's sort of policing this Jewish minority and telling them like, you don't get to be violent. Yeah. But I, I just, one other thing I want, it could be only because we've mentioned it so many times. Yeah. I just want to make a like sort of clarification or blanket statement. We are both aware that, being blonde haired and blue eyed does not mean that you are not Jewish. And I know many Jews yeah, who follow yeah, that yeah. description, but it, it, it is the, it is a, um, well, I guess it's a stereotype in a way of a non-Jew, but basically because of the Holocaust, right. The, the, Aryan right. ideal it comes up because Nazis often point to blonde hair and blue eyes as right. like superior genetic right. white symbols of like whiteness as it should be. Right, right. right. So I just wanted to say that because it, it's it's comes up, it's been coming up a lot as we've totally. been describing Steve and being critical of Steve. Yep. And so I just wanted to sort of point that out that we are aware and no Jews who are blonde haired, blue eyed, some even tall, maybe even six foot five, two hundred. One hundred percent. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it is the Nazi ideal, which is part of the irony uh, here in many ways. So that, yeah. I just wanted to Thanks point Thanks for out. bringing that up, Henry. Yeah, <laughs> well, totally. So speaking of Nazi thoughts, the Nazi then continues on stage giving his speech um, and continues, which I'm going to read another gross quote here. Does that mean that the Blacks with their delusions of equality and the Jews, with their myth of the six million Holocaust victims, should be allowed to walk beside us on the street, secure in the knowledge that God does not hear the prayers of a, a Jew. And as he's saying that last word, Jew, we see that the Jews have gotten so frustrated and angry that they're throwing things at him, right? Like, he, they're throwing bottles at the man and once hit him as he's saying it because, like, what a schmuck he's saying that the Holocaust, he's literally saying the Holocaust is a myth of six millions. And also saying, right, like that, like black Americans have delusions of equality. Like this guy is spitting the most gross anti-Semitic racist stuff there could be. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. So what happens next, Henry? Page 15. The Jewish protesters start throwing bottles. And Steve's a you know, on par with everything he's been doing the last couple of issues, he's appalled by this because he thought this was supposed to be a peaceful protest. And Bernie actually is appalled too. It seems like Bernie wasn't expecting this. And you can, the way it's drawn, you can kind of feel the tension in it. That Absolutely. Like it's I about to... to blow. It's a powder. Yeah. Keg. And Bernie's reaction of horror adds to that. And Sammy, th then it kind of, the, the bow breaks and Sammy leaps onto the stage threatening the Nazi who also calls him Jew boy. So we're, we're sort of getting this back and forth and back and forth between these two entities. But the, the Nazi then says, I've had my fill of guys like you all my life. You've pushed me around, beat me out of jobs, treated me like dirt, but no more. 
Yeah. Oh, it's so gross. This idea that like somehow the Jews took this life away from him that he was owed. And there's just like in typical fashion, anti-Semitism is built on this idea of Jews somehow being like globalist conspiracy leaders yeah. and like taking over. And, and, and as you said, right, like I'm flashing back to 2017 and, and, and the marches in Charlottesville and hearing the neo-Nazis saying Jews will not replace us. Like that's what this guy is talking about. Also on page 19, we get our dose of superheroing. Steve Rogers changes into costume. Captain America leaps onto the scene. It is no longer the heroic image of Captain America beating up a bunch of Nazis, but rather Captain America leaps onto the stage, but this time, instead of just coming to fight Nazis, um, he lands in between the Nazi and Sammy who are struggling with each other. And it's, it's a striking image and an incredible panel because Sammy is blatantly and, and, and clearly wearing his Kipa sort of brightly there cap lands in between them and then goes on to give a speech about how this attack is an attack on freedom and people need to be able to express both noble and ignoble ideas. And that phrasing, by the way, is what tips it off to Bernie. She's like, wait a minute. I've heard this argument before. Like this is Steve. This is how she realizes, but on page 21, Demetrius now takes what Roger McKenzie wrote in 245 and brings it even further by having Captain America directly accuse Sammy of becoming what he hates. Yeah, he's being very lectury here. It's very paternalistic. It's really awful, right? Like you by defending yourself, you're becoming what you hate. And then he tells the Nazi the Nazis rewriting history, because clearly that's not what actually happened. And then it's kind of funny, but both the Nazi and Sammy turn in anger on Captain America. <laughs> like, you self-righteous scum. Um, and I just, like, I wrote... Sammy says that, not the Sam- Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sammy says it, because he just said, you're just as bad as a Nazi. And so Sammy's like, you self-righteous scum. Yeah, I know he's right. I know you beat up Nazis, <laughs> right? Like, And I have this in my notes, but like, Captain America sure does love to tell Jews that they're just as bad as Nazis. Yeah. Not uh, a great look, Steve. Luck. <laughs> it's, it's really, I mean, he really, so before it was sort of like, okay, he was sued once by the, you know, like you kind of give him a little leeway. All right. He's, he has, okay. He liberated the camps, but he's a superhero. Maybe he doesn't, whatever. You give him a little yeah. leeway, but here he like goes into a full blown lecture, holding the two men at his arm's length. You this and you that and see you're the same. Right. Like almost like as <laughs> a parent stopping two children that's yeah. fighting and sibling rivalry, as opposed to like I don't know, like as opposed to like a Nazi group calling for one's destruction and the others being like, please don't kill me. Right. <laughs> Except without the please, right? He's saying, like, don't kill me. Like, yeah. So frustrating. Really disappointing end to to an issue. Yeah, on page 22, we get one last, like Cap takes down both of them and says to the two of them, you're only interested in your own self-consuming hate, two of a kind. They're not two of a kind. They don't go together. They're not, it's not a a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. It's a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios and like poisonous shredded wheat. (laughs) it's, It's not the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. 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 It's really, it's really interesting to imagine like, was the average reader reading this and being like, yeah, Cap's totally right. Like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Like violence is never the answer except for in superhero comics where it's always the answer. <laughs> 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 Which like, that's another frustrating part of it. Right. Is it's yeah. like, 
do as I say, not as I do. Well, we only get like a tiny bit of the next issue. Henry, do you want to bring us to the conclusion of the story Jewishly? Sure. So we have the same creative team in Captain America, number 276, December 1982. Uh, this issue is called Turning Point. Just to go through that again, written by J.M. DeMatteis, penciled by Mike Zeck, inked by John Beatty, colored by Bob Sharon, lettered by John Morelli, and edited by Mark Grunewald. What happens, Henry? So really just on, on the second page, police officers telling Captain America that the JPAO guy Bernstein, Sammy Bernstein, and the Nazi escaped. And the Nazi pulls out, uh, they, they, they've escaped, but they're, they're kind of hiding behind the stage while the cop is talking. And the Nazi pulls out a gun to fire at Cap and Cap takes him down. And Sammy then goes, nice reflexes. You nailed him so fast. I hardly saw it. But don't worry, I don't carry a gun. And Cap goes, Bernstein, so you came back, which... You know, between you and me, that's just kind of great to hear Captain America yeah, say, Bernstein, yeah, yeah. you came back. Right. You always <laughs> come back, Cap. Then on the next page, Sammy says the following. I didn't run, Captain. I just needed time to think. To think. You showed me an ugly side of myself today. I've been so blinded by my hatred for Todd's ilk that I've almost become a brother to them. I won't let that hatred consume me again, Captain. I promise you that. And the cop is taking him away and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell it to the judge. So he's getting arrested for his actions. Great. Right. Um, and he's Bernie. Is it great? Uh, it's sarcastic. Great. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> great. This is Bernie. And she's like, I'll meet you at the police station, Sam. There's something important I have to take care of. And then they get into the story. Right. And that's, that's the end of it. It's so like, Unfortunately, we get to this Sammy, like you were right, Captain America. I shouldn't have been so consumed by hatred when like, I'm, I'm not convinced of that. I think, I think it's real. He, he jumped on stage to attack a Nazi and then was willing to even attack Captain America for his, what he believed in his conviction convictions. And then one speech and an arrest later. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I see the error of my ways. Golly gee whiz cap. I yeah. was, I sure yeah. was wrong on this one what and also yeah yeah i also i'm so struck by like when he comes out and is like don't worry i don't have a gun like there's a way in which you read that is like he's saying it casually but there's also a way in which it's like oh shoot this feels like in 2022 we've seen the number of you know it's usually people of color but like when you have seen minorities like at even the hint that they have a gun like what might happen right he's also kind of coming out there to the police officer in captain america being like i don't have a gun i don't have a gun right like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm here yeah. but like don't take me out and we're gonna go really rapid style now to just like there's a few more jewish moments sprinkled in throughout jm de mateus's run involving bernie we're not going to share the creative team for the most part because they're so quick but i'm sure we'll have it in the episode notes right if people want to see it yeah so, yeah and certainly this this next one is the same creative team with like one or two other people right so captain america number 281 in may 1983 called before the fall on page nine, there's a lovely moment of Steve and Bernie chatting in Brooklyn Heights, and Bernie has recently saved Steve's life. Steve's so happy, and Bernie just makes the cute response, maybe I should get myself a cape and tights and start fighting crime as Bernie, the Hebrew wonder. Mm. Um, 
love love that concept three issues later in captain america number 284 called diverging we see another party in the building that bernie is throwing steve arrives and there's lots of jews we see lots of guys wearing kippas in there it's like nice to see there's somebody going around thinking to himself how excited he is for all the knishes and stuffed cabbages mm-hmm. which just feels like very ashkenazi food on page 10 an arm suddenly gets thrown around steve calling him hey boy chick um, but <laughs> it, it it throws steve uh, you know off so on page 11 steve's instincts kick in and he tosses sammy over his head and that's who it turns out to be it turns out to be sammy bernstein saying hi sam is sort of thrown off um steve helps him up and helps actually puts the keeper back on sammy's head he knocked off sammy's keeper it's kind of cute I really it's love a that. cute moment but you know like sammy that's twice now that you introduce yourself by just like coming up and covering someone's eyes you gotta not you can't sneak up on people like that he doesn't have Uh, good good like personal space boundaries no he does not captain america number 289 there's a side story called bernie america sentinel of liberty there is no jewish content here but it's basically bernie has a dream on page 20 of a world where instead of dating cap she is captain america and it's just Mm. like just the image of an explicitly Jewish woman as Captain America. Wow. Mm. Right. She calls herself Bernie America, which is funny. She's not yeah. a captain. She's Bernie. Bernie America. Much like the power behind the Falcon taking over, Sam Wilson taking over as Captain America to see a black man as Cap. Seeing a Jewish woman as like the embodiment of America as a superhero is there's a powerful visual. It really means something. Mm-hmm. Again, we're moving through this at a quick clip. The last issue we want to talk about. Captain America number 317 in February 1986. This is after the end of Dave Mateus's run. The issue is called Death Throws. It's now written by Mark Grunewald, penciled by Paul Neary, inked by Dennis Schonke, colored by Ken Fedunowitz, lettered by Diana Albers, and edited by Michael Carlin. Cap and Bernie broke up a bit ago, but Bernie is now moving out of the building for law school, and Cap decides to move out too and it's basically the end of an era for cap you know we're in a we're in a new creative team and uh cap is leaving this address and the apartment and everyone behind bernie is heading off to law school and um cap comments that he's worried they ruin anna's chance of being a matchmaker anna really liked the fact that bernie and cap and steve are dating each other she calls uh, them her kinder by the way she says my oh. kinder so beautiful yeah. so lovely as um, they both kiss her they give her a little smooch on the cheek kiss her goodbye so she's like oh. really like a grandma to them she 100 right? is and yeah. she's the building mom bubby. she's a bubby yeah she's the bubby and uh bernie's dad then enters talking about how the movers got to get all of her chazarai which like <laughs> love it and then we get a little caption that lets us know that chazarai uh translated from the yiddish like it's yiddish for junk or stuff i love it that we have that and bernie mentions to steve that uh her dad never quite warmed up to the idea of her dating a goy um so which we don't love that word to describe no, a Gentile, 100% we don't, but it, it is does fit for 1982 or so yeah for, i think this one's 86 but yeah 100 yeah, it, it it's there um and also obviously like i love Steve and Bernie as a couple, and I'm totally fine with it. And it also makes sense that people of that generation were a bit more like, oh, you should only marry someone who's Jewish. That is the end 
as far as I know, Bernie reappears, Sammy reappears, but the Jewish content never really does. It, it's it's kept to that window from 1979 to 1986. But Henry, we saw some, as you said, historic issues that are really like powerful and incredible that are diving into Holocaust and anti-Semitism and issues of freedom of speech and just like some incredible depictions. So, you know, at the end of this, what are your thoughts on these issues we covered? Where are you on Captain America, on Bernie, on Anna? Yeah, I think like Anna and, and Bernie on our, you know, obviously we, we, we have a, we might have, have a different scale, but like, you know, five stars for Anna and, and, and Bernie Cap was really rough in this one. You know, it was really hard to see him doing that, you know, acting in that way and speaking in that way and believing in that way. Someone, you know, has strong convictions as a character. It was, it was tough. It doesn't make me, as they say in Hebrew, big adult in like the big picture, like Captain America any less. I don't have like, I'm not going to harbor any feelings. And if anything, I am more on the side of appreciative that these things happened in Captain America comics, even if the way he was characterized wasn't great or wasn't to my liking, certainly didn't represent Jews well or the way we view Nazis and the Holocaust, given everything we know about his history. But I will take it all over not having it at all. And certainly, as I shared earlier in the episode, take it over not having that be a part of his history because it's incredibly important. And even just that one issue, Dianu, uh, by Chris Claremont, it would have been enough. But there's a conversation over several issues now that is there forever. So I, I would say like this is probably the most, one of the more impactful things we've We've done, I think, because A, it came so late in the in, in in the game for us, and B, such an iconic character that you know was unexpected. So, you know, overall I'm feeling great about this experience and about this representation. And as I've said before, I would love to see more of that. I would love to see a modern update on this. You know, I would what you know, Bernie and and, and Steve go to Anna's funeral and, and sit Shiva with her because they don't have family. She doesn't have family left or something like that. You know, some sort of catch up mid modern times of, 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 of these people. That's really cool. Yeah. I was thinking how much I'm not surprised it didn't exist in the eighties, but how much I would love an issue that shows Steve and Bernie in the apartment, just having a conversation where she can share a bit more about what it does mean for her. We see Steve change his mind and go to the rally, but I'd really love to see her sort of have conversations with Steve about what it does mean and to talk about anti-Semitism in that way. And and I just think there's some some cool opportunities that it's just a story I don't think we've ever seen. Like what a really neat interfaith relationship story to be able to see her talking about that experience. And and what a cool moment of history to sort of capture in terms of like this building in brooklyn in the 80s that just like you know steve's i guess a struggling artist supposedly but like he's he's living there again like it was really interesting to see like it was all people of color and jews living together in this building and then steve rogers captain america like there with the people and like how cool that that was the america he was defending and living in in that moment yeah. it's really it's really sort of neat and um i think jm de Mateus, you know will 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 probably 
share it later, but he had a tweet where he talked about the fact that like during his run, Captain America's best friend was a black man and his girlfriend was a Jewish woman. And like that is is powerful about what America is and what America could be. And I think that's one thing I love about these issues is you know, Captain America's stories are at their best when they not only recognize Cap as a symbol of America, but when they have Captain America grappling with the American dream and the American people and what it means to be in this country. And I I have really, through this podcast, come to love and appreciate the ways that the social consciousness that is present in 1980s comics, especially, right? Like I was born in 85. I was not of consciousness enough to enjoy it. And like going back, I'm finding all these stories that are a little rougher around the edges than a lot of the modern stuff that I would read, but ultimately are so fascinating and interesting in the way they present things. And I just like, I, I'm so grateful to have found that book. We spoke out and to learn about sort of the, the historical importance of Captain America 237 and these others. And it's just, it's really powerful to sort of see how the Holocaust is presented, how Judaism is presented, and to see them not backing away from depictions of this as something, a crime that was committed against Jews and seeing anti-Semitism against Jews. I don't normally like spending a lot of time focusing on the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, but as you said, like it's been a while since we've covered issues that not only felt full of Jewish content, but important. And I feel like a lot of this run is important. Yeah. Yeah. And then we've talked about like, you know, do we always have to talk about the Holocaust if we're talking about Judaism? Why in comics are they always connected? But they are, and it's yeah, it, 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 it's fine. Um, let me ask you a question. Maybe this will be a final thought. Yeah. <laughs> this has been quite the marathon. First of all, I just want to say thank you to J.M. DeMatteis, to Roger McKenzie, to Chris Claremont, of course, uh, Mark Grunewald for putting this all out there, even if I don't agree about with the attitudes of of Captain America. This is all great stuff. And even, you know, some of the silly superhero-y stuff, like this is all good stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative and grateful. Do you think that the way in which Captain America was written as holding that opinion of both sides, blah, 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 blah. Do you think the, the intention of the writers or Marvel or whatever is to, for us to look at him and say, yes, you are right. And that's why Sammy is written that way that he like just changes his mind. Or do you think that cap is written in a way where we're supposed to question him? I'm talking about the intention of editorial or, or the writers. If we're picking this up in 1982 or 1986 or 79, whatever it is, and we're seeing, getting that off the spinner rack, are we supposed to come away with it saying, yeah, cap is right. Or are we supposed to be like, mm, Cap, I'm not sure I agree. You're you're not, you don't know enough here. I don't think that it, at the time it was encouraging critical engagement with Cap's viewpoint. I do think the comic was behind Captain America. And I think we see that in the way that a lot of these things get resolved, which is namely that Bernie does get a, or that Sammy does get arrested and that, you know, Anna isn't the one to kill uh, the Nazi, right? Like the narrative seems to side with Captain America's mm-hmm. viewpoint. That being said, one, I think like, especially because all of these comics came out pre-1986 and pre-Watchmen and pre that sort of darker revolution of the 80s that really mm-hmm. started to intentionally subvert expectations, yeah. right? In a certain way, like I don't really think there was too many comics that presented the hero in a negative light 
before those points. I could be wrong. I'm not a perfect. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, but like Neil Adams did some of that stuff with Green Arrow and Green Green Lantern and Batman in the 70s, right? Um, but other than that, I think you're you're right. Yeah, right. So so I think I think comics were still yeah invested in this like like i do think comics for better or worse have this sort of sometimes sometimes moralizing message to them that being said i do want to point out that i think the issue that didn't equivocate at all was the one plotted by chris claremont and scripted by roger mckenzie and so the one that had a jewish author most involved to me felt most respectful and most accurate in its depiction and then when we got roger mckenzie alone who had started with claremont it started to veer a little in a direction where i was like i don't really like it because he was saying to anna that she would you know be the same as a nazi and then we get to dave mateus who's not jewish um and i think is often you know he definitely pretty sure in his x-factor run he he gets interested in 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 spirituality and 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 religions but like is not known for depicting minority religions i think particularly well i don't want to say that but like when you get to dave mateus who's like even more removed and is not jewish right like i think it's it, it just feels like the writers are thinking about larger moral issues and they are not thinking about things necessarily from the perspective mm, of what mm. would it really feel like to be mm. Jewish, right? Like, mm. I, like it feels pretty clear to me. I think if someone didn't read, didn't listen to this podcast and didn't know anything about the writers and were to read these issues, they'd probably be able to pick out which one was written by a Jew and which one was not. Mm, mm. Yeah. They're sort of at the expense of, no, that's the actual Holocaust where Jews died. They're playing a like moral ethical question game. Like they're they're yeah. sort of putting it on the whiteboard, like an ethical question of does violence plus violence equal you know equal violence or is it you know something like that? And right. and, and and fortunately here it's like no 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 this is the Holocaust we're talking about we're talking about Nazis it's not so yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think like currently, right? Like I think it's pretty common to sort of have people be like with Nazis involved, it's it's different, right? Like I think that's a somewhat uh embraced, right? Like, and I don't know if that's because of the fact that Nazis are so often the villains in movies and in video games and they sort of become punching bags this way, but also it's like it continues to be a live threat. There are neo-Nazis that are posting things on a regular basis. Nazis, by the way. Yeah. And on that note, um, I think another episode is going to come to a close. Next yeah. time, we'll be continuing our journey into supporting characters, though uh, we won't say exactly what, but we're going to be hopping over the fence to DC and looking at some some supporting characters in the world of DC. And until then, I'm Brandon Bernstein. I'm Henry Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Jewish Comics Pod. Or you can email us at jewishcomicspodcast at gmail.com.